I hoped that we could come here and reason together. And as a reasonable man, I'm willing to do whatever's necessary to find a peaceful solution to these problems. Then we are agreed. The traffic in drugs will be permitted, but controlled. And Don Corleone will give her protection in the East, and there will be the peace. But I must have strict assurance from Corleone. As time goes by and his position becomes stronger, will he attempt any individual vendetta? Look, we are all reasonable men here. We don't have to give assurances as if we were lawyers. You talk about vengeance. Is vengeance going to bring your son back to you? Or my boy to me? I forgot the vengeance of my son. But I have selfish reasons. My younger son was forced to leave this country because of this Sonotso business. All right, I have to make arrangements to bring him back here safely, clear of all these false charges. But I'm a superstitious man. And if some unlucky accident should befall him, if he should get shot in the head by a police officer, or if he should hang himself in his jail cell, or if he's struck by a bolt of lightning, then I'm going to blame some of the people in this room. And then I do not forgive. But that aside, Let me say that I swear on the souls of my grandchildren that I will not be the one to break the peace we've made here today. Tell your people, should I insist that all these drug middlemen have clean records? Mention it. Don't insist. But Zini's a man who know that without being told. You mean Tatalia? Tatalia's a pimp. He never could have outfought Santino. But I didn't know until this day that it was Zini all along. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 300, The Godfather. 300, can you believe it? Although I do feel like if you go back in the archives, 
There's an episode where we say that we'll never do The Godfather. Probably, yeah. Well, we used to have a different mindset yeah. of what we were doing. <laughs> it's changed a lot well, since the and beginning. The show has evolved, and we're breaking all our own rules. Right. Yeah, there was a time where I was thinking if we could just get to episode 300, that would be more than enough. The real show would start at that moment. <laughs> no, I thought that would be the end. Yeah, true. Was, that was the goal. I was thinking 300 would be great. 300 seemed highly unattainable. Even when we did 200, I yeah. was thinking, if we just do 100 more, that would be cool. Now I'm thinking, it's never going to end. Not just in relation to this show, but I pretty much live my life just trying to make it to tomorrow, like every day. Like, if I can make it to tomorrow, that's pretty impressive. So, uh, attaining 300 episodes, really stunning. Who would have thought? So, we saved a huge movie for episode 300, a movie that seems very daunting to do i think what matt was referring to earlier was there were a lot of things we listed privately mostly Mm -hmm. but maybe on episodes two where we would think well what are we gonna add to that conversation there's already so much material about it but now i'm thinking we need to give our spin on everything right (laughs) and this is an important one you talked about it a little bit before the show but for me i can so vividly remember watching this on tv at a pretty early age yeah my dad having to like explain to me all these characters because you're just not getting everything so there's a lot to jump into before we do there's a lot of housekeeping for episode 300 we're back from a break a lot has happened but let's start with the basics follow us on twitter at greatest pod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcasts on apple podcasts podbean etc i will say that For whatever reason, I had several people want to see a full list of our episodes. Maybe, I guess, to know what to request or not. I'm not really sure, but... Oh, at this point, going through the catalog is like reading a novel. Yeah, the only way I really know how to do that is in Apple Podcasts. In an app where you're finding us. There you go. Scroll down. That's the answer. Yeah, that's probably the easiest. Even taking you to the Podbean website, you have to click on multi-pages. You have to keep going back and back and back to see them all. But you can scroll in the app, which would be easier. Yes. I can assure you the Apple Podcast app is far easier to sort through than Podbean. If you'd like a free sticker, you can reach out on Twitter at GreatestPod and let us know and we'll send that to you. If you get a chance, give us a rating and review. We've had an influx of them over the last month or two, so that's been nice reading those. You love to see it. If you haven't already done so, that's something you can do. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there. We set a deadline of a couple weeks ago. I think it was Friday, January 6th or something like that. To get in a listener request if you had not already done so, and it would still be free. So we got a few in. I think we have six, maybe, more to do for free. The window has since slammed shut. But to give everyone an update, so hopefully you're listening, because I don't (laughs) think I'm going to repeat all of this for every episode. So if you did a listener request and you'd like to know when we're getting to it, I'm going to run through that real fast, and then you're just going to have to wait and see. Although maybe I'll repeat it when we do listener requests, but I'm not going to repeat it all the time. So Matt... You lucked out. Oh, good. Not you. Oh. You fell in line with some of our thinking. Nothing's finalized or anything, but you made it easy. So you're going to be up first in February with yours. And I'll tell you right up front, 
you did provide us a list, and so mm. I know that a couple of your choices are coming up someday. So you'll not only get an early one here, but just based on your list, it, it sort of syncs up with some of our plans. Maybe a little bonus treatment for following the instructions. Rob, you're up in March, Mark, April. Ron, you're in May, although we may need a little more time than that, depending, because you have requested something that neither Matt nor myself are experts in, so we're going to wait and see, but probably May. Hmm. Nobody is up in June because we're bringing back One Trashy Summer, which we did not do last year. It's a little like State of the Union, too. Shelly, you are in July... And Thomas, luckily I saw your tweet in time. Not that I wouldn't have counted it if I saw that it was before the timeline, but, you know, it was something weird going on with Twitter, and I wasn't seeing all of our mentions for some reason, and some of this stuff was hidden from me. I don't know. It's a new era. So yours we will get to probably in August or September or sometime in there. The reason why we're pushing that so far back is that your request happens to be similar to one that we just did. Now, he did request three, and two of which we did last year, so that ties in with what I was saying before. (laughs) If you scroll back into the app, you should be able to find those other episodes that you wanted. I guess for people who are newer to the show, maybe aren't familiar with our full catalog, that's all I can really say is to scroll through the Apple podcasts, or if you don't have Apple or whatever, whatever app you're finding us in, that's pretty much the easiest way to see what we've done already i will say as someone who's on the show when you ask me stuff that i want to do it's hard for me to know if we've done it or not i'm good about remembering but yeah there are so many now right so that is our up-to-date free listener request now there will be no more free listener requests which is something we alluded to a lot towards the end of last year before we took our break so our here we go. Our method for receiving payment has not been set up yet because I just sort of forgot to do it. There is no way to pay us yet <laughs> for these listener requests, but we will give you a little bit of an idea of where we're going with it. What we've decided is that for any movie that we have not already done that is available to watch, uh-huh. meaning it's somewhere we can find and it's not some obscure thing that we can't track down, for up to a movie two hours and 10 minutes in length, the price will be $50 for a listener request. Now, if that sounds horrifyingly high... It's just what it is. It's just what it is. Then just don't do it. Right. It's not for you then. Believe me, I probably would never do this. So I understand. But the amount of time that goes into this, that's actually a bargain. Believe me. (laughs) Now, why am I cutting it off at two hours and 10 minutes? That's the length of movie that I think is reasonable for that amount there has to be a cutoff at some point if you want a movie that's longer we will do 75 dollars for a movie up to three hours long which is crazy because we don't want to yeah certainly <laughs> a movie that's three hours long i really don't want to have to do so that's really a bargain once you get into that range i know that nikki did mm-hmm. titanic jade jfk those oh, would wow, have been yeah. more into this 75 dollar range but those were free, so you got in before the, the deadline. Now, anything over three hours or anything TV-related, which we will go ahead and open up, but I will say those things will have to be negotiated privately, maybe in DMs or something. 
to figure out what we think would be fair. Now, the reason why I'm saying that, even though TV episodes are shorter, because it's complicated, mm -hmm. which is why we don't really do TV as much now, because a lot of times you have to provide context. Yes. So you're watching more than one episode. It's a whole thing. It's hard to just do an isolated episode, unless it's like Salute Your Shorts, you know? Right. Yeah, if you ask for like a 30 or 22-minute sitcom type thing, then yeah, I'm sure we can work something out, but... It's up for discussion. I don't know why you would waste your time, because right. the minimum is $50. <laughs> don't think you're getting anything cheaper than that. That's true, and there may be ones that might be easy, but we just flat out don't want to do. <laughs> yeah, those will be more. Right. Anything else that you can think of, maybe reach out in the DMs and we can try to negotiate. Now, we're going to open up something where you can donate money to the show that's under $50 for the kindness of your heart, that kind of a thing. Like a tip jar on Twitter is probably what we're going to set up. So whatever. We'll get uh -huh. more into that once it's actually set up. I'll have to look into it more this week or something. Those are going to be the prices. If those are too high, I understand. Believe me. Don't worry about it. The show is free. There won't be any change. In fact, the listener requests themselves are probably going to be more like bonus episodes. We're still planning on doing like a full slate. Yeah, we have to do the episodes we want to do or else it doesn't really feel worth it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's where we are with that. There'll be more information to come once that's set up. If you do pay for a listener request, we would probably get to it more quickly. So don't worry about that timeline of the free ones. It's not going to necessarily come after all of those or anything because obviously if you're paying there's a little bit more priority and like i said it'll probably be more a little more of a sense of urgency to get it out yeah it'll be more of like a bonus episode anyway it's not going to take the place of anything so if you're interested in doing that stay tuned maybe it'll be set up as soon as the next episode i don't know mm -hmm. we'll see but that's basically going to be the plan and if you're confused about the pricing or you're not sure or whatever obviously you can reach out I, I would assume that it would make more sense to me if you were going to do this to maybe reach out before you donated the money even when it's set up and everything drop into the dms yeah. be like hey i'm planning on doing this confirm everything whatever. i weirdly got two text messages today about us doing 80 for brady and i was like sorry the windows slammed shut you can't request Although we probably will do a give us a second on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right. I think that covers basically everything news-wise with the show. Mm -hmm. Other than the fact that it's 300. I can't believe we're still doing this. The usual spiel. Right. <laughs> there really isn't much planned for episode 300 because the topic itself is so massive and there's so much to cover. It's really shocking that there's so many storylines contained within a single movie well yeah that, that's your epic movie yeah that's how it works this is three hours long i believe part two is even longer mm -hmm. and there's a ton of shit deleted from both movies and then added into the godfather saga which has only really been a tv thing i guess but the godfather itself was released in 1972 it was directed by francis ford coppola Screenplay by Coppola and Mario Puzo, based on Puzo's 1969 novel of the same name. Which, shockingly, I actually have read. I have not, so maybe you can provide some insight. Yeah, it's been about 20 years, but I have at least one thing I could reference. The budget was somewhere between 6 
and 7.2 million. The box office was somewhere between 250 to 291 million. A little bit of confusion about that. But irregardless, it was the highest grossing film at that time. It would be replaced by Jaws in a couple of years, and then Star Wars after that, and then continually changing over the years. The Godfather was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, with one nomination being withdrawn. Huh. It won three. It won Best Picture, Best Actor for Marlon Brando. Brando, of course, did not attend the ceremony, choosing instead to have himself represented by Seicheen Littlefeather, a Native American Californian actress. She clarified that Brando respectfully refused the award due to the poor treatment of American Indians in entertainment, as well as the recent wounded knee incident. There were some jeers, and then they were drowned out by applause, and then it turned into a whole thing. I think John Wayne was trying to beat her up, you know. What? Yeah, he had to be, like, physically restrained because he felt like that was, I guess, a, a shot at his career or something. It also won Best Adapted Screenplay for Puzo and Coppola. And I just want to add real quick that when Robert De Niro won Best Supporting Actor for Godfather Part II, it was the only time in history that two actors have won an Academy Award for the same version of the same character. Oh, wow. Now, two actors have won for the same character more recently when Heath Ledger and Joaquin Phoenix both won for playing the Joker. True. But they're not playing the same Joker. Right. Whereas, technically, De Niro and Brando are playing the same Vito Corleone. Mm -hmm. It's just different times in the story. The film also received three nominations for Best Supporting Actor for James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino, likely splitting the vote there. Pacino did not attend the ceremony, supposedly in protest of perceived category fraud, as his performance reflected greater screen time than that of his co-star, Marlon Brando. Mm -hmm. Pacino sort of debunked that in recent years. I think it's hard to put into context how people felt about the Academy Awards back then. There were a lot more things like Brando declining the award and sending a Native American woman or Pacino not showing up at all. When De Niro won for part two, he wasn't there. Huh. When Jack Nicholson won for Chinatown, is that the one he won for? I believe so. He accepted on the set of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay. In a video. You know, that kind of stuff. It wasn't such a big deal that people were like losing their mind over being there and taking it so seriously. So I don't know. I think Pacino later said that he kind of just was like, I I don't really care that much. Although people have pointed out that he was sort of the lead actor of the film based on screen time. I was going to say that when you think of this movie, don't you think of him as the lead? The other nominations were for Coppola for Best Director, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and the Withdrawn Award was for Best Music Original Score. It was deemed ineligible because... Nino Rota reused music from a previous film that he had done the score for called Fortunella. Okay. However, it is strange because he won for part two, and yet there's elements from part one used in part two. I mean, I'm sure it's not that main theme, though, is it? 
I think the love theme, which is the okay. second most known yeah. part, is reused in part two. The Godfather obviously has gone on to be known as one of, if not the greatest films of all time, and one of the most influential, quoted, referenced, revered, mm-hmm. etc. Oh, yeah. I don't know that it's really possible to calculate how much of an impact that it's had on pop culture, because obviously you go to its legacy as far as gangster films and mafia films, but I think it goes beyond that into family films, into epic films. Definitely. Well, it kind of completely changed the game of crime movies, too, because it was noir forever, and then this is this epic, sprawling, completely different vibe than what we knew crime movies to be. And by we, I mean people that lived before me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just humanity in general. As mentioned, the film is based on Puzo's novel, The Godfather, which remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 67 weeks and sold over 9 million copies in two years. Published in 1969, it became the best-selling published work in history for several years. Paramount Pictures originally found out about Puzo's novel in 67 when a literary scout for the company contacted then-Paramount Vice President of Production Peter Bart about Puzo's unfinished 60-page manuscript. Bart believed the work was, quote, much beyond a mafia story and offered Puzo just $12,500 for an option for the work, with an option for $80,000 if the finished work were to actually be made into a film. Despite Puzo's agent telling him to turn down the offer, Puzo was desperate for money and accepted the deal. Paramount's Robert Evans relates that when they met in early 1968, he offered Puzo the $12,500 deal for the 60-page manuscript titled Mafia after the author confided in him that he urgently needed $10,000 to pay off gambling debts. Oh, boy. There was a little bit of a distressed origin story to the film. (laughs) They definitely lowballed him because they knew he was in trouble financially, Hmm. although... As shady as that all sounds, it's unlikely that anyone really knew what they had on their hands, especially when you hear a lot of Paramount's ideas and a lot of their pushback against Coppola's ideas and what they were trying to do with this movie. I don't think they had any clue where this was going. He was like, I missed my kid's birthday party. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just hanging outside casinos. (laughs) Evans wanted Italian-Americans for the project because previous mafia efforts like The Brotherhood, starring Kirk Douglas and directed by Martin Ritt, lacked a certain credibility, and they also bombed at the box office. Sergio Leone was the first choice, but he turned it down, and he eventually made his own gangster picture Once Upon a Time in America. They turned then to Peter Bogdanovich, who was notably not Italian, but he declined no interest in the mafia. <laughs> he ends up playing <laughs> a the therapist Sopranos. in The Sopranos. Yeah. <laughs> in addition, Peter Yates, Richard Brooks, Arthur Penn, Costas Gravis, and Otto Preminger were all offered the position, and they wow. all declined Holy shit. as well. It was hard to land a director for some reason. People did not have a ton of interest in this idea at the time. Once again, having no idea, I just assumed Coppola was attached early on to this. Peter Bart suggested Francis Ford Coppola as a director of Italian ancestry who would work for a low sum and budget after the poor reception of his latest film, The Rain People. 
Coppola initially turned down the job because he found Puzo's novel sleazy and sensationalist, describing it as, quote, pretty cheap stuff. At the time, Coppola's studio, American Zoetrope, owed over $400,000 to Warner Brothers for budget overruns with the film THX 1138. Yikes. Wonder if he'd ever uh, walk back some of the commentary on the novel. And when coupled with his poor financial standing, along with advice from friends and family, Coppola reversed his initial decision and took the job. I believe so, because he was the one that was adamant that it should be called Mario Puzo's The Godfather. (laughs) Yeah. Coppola was officially announced as director of the film in September of 1970, and he agreed to receive 125,000 and 6% of the gross rentals. Wow. Those percentages can really pay off. Coppola later found a deeper theme for the material and decided that the film should not be about organized crime, but rather a family chronicle, a metaphor for capitalism in America. And it should also be pointed out that many actors cast in the Corleone family ended up not being Italian. Brando, despite what his name may sound like, is Dutch. James Kahn is part German, part Jewish. Abe Vigoda... Russian Jewish, mm-hmm. amongst others. So the story of the making of the film has been well documented. There's a whole fucking show called The Offer, which I did not watch, with Miles Teller. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. And all that. I didn't watch it either, but I do remember <laughs> somebody telling me about it. <laughs> There's so much content out there now. It's yeah, just... it's hard to even keep track of all this stuff. That's like something that somebody mentions to me in passing, like, oh, yeah, there's this show, and they explain what it's about. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll check that out. Never happens. But what really ends up happening is it becomes Coppola versus Paramount. It's one of these huge, <laughs> just always disastrous seeming productions <laughs> where a lot of fighting, a lot of budget concerns. Originally, they had only penciled in two point five million for the budget, but then they wow. increased it thanks to the novel's continued and growing popularity. So all during pre-production and organizing it, and then into production, the novel continues to be huge. So they're thinking, okay, we can put more money into this. The studio wanted to make the story take place in contemporary 1970s Kansas City. Wow. Shot in the studio backlot in Hmm. order to save money. What a misfire that would have been. Coppola knew that that wouldn't work. He objected and wanted to set the movie in the same time period as the novel, which is the 40s and 50s. I know. They're talking about the five families of Kentucky. One of his reasons was Michael Corleone's Marine Corps stint, also the emergence of corporate America and America in the years after World War II, which would have not made any sense in the 70s and wouldn't have worked into the story. Since the novel continued to be popular, his wishes were granted. The studio heads subsequently let Coppola film on location in New York City and Sicily, which of course costs a lot more money, but I think you can tell the difference. It's so much more memorable when you get into the Sicily vignette of the film, that whole no portion, and you're like, oh, this is just a completely different world. Right. There was a lot of casting issues, indecisiveness, Coppola's inexperience. A lot of these different things were swirling into rumors of a potential disaster, which is par for the course for Coppola, even to today, <laughs> which maybe we'll touch on more at the end with this whole megalopolis thing which is now blowing up into disaster reports and way over budget (laughs) and all this shit like a tough guy to work with 
Well, he's a passionate artist. But yeah. the cool thing about Coppola later in his career, not necessarily with this film, but later, especially starting with Apocalypse Now, but then more into the 80s stuff, which did not work right. and all bombed, he was basically spending his own money, yeah, yeah. which is something you should never do, they say. <laughs> but I, I like that. He's yeah, got yeah. skin in the game, and he wants to do it his way. Now, One from the Heart and The Cotton Club and those movies mm-hmm. didn't make any money and completely bombed and made him bankrupt time and time again. <laughs> but he always bets on himself. Right. And now that he's in his fucking 80s, he was making this dream project. He's spending all of his wine money. Oh, wow. A hundred yeah. whatever million that's spiraling out of control. He's got this huge cast. and Love it. Now all of this cgi stuff or technical stuff that's part of the film they're all quitting or fired oh or whatever and you feel like the bet's gonna work when you see something like a babylon where it really <laughs> seems like yeah. these epic big cast hundred million dollar movies are really working out right now he's probably thinking i could pass this money down to my ancestors and relatives but, but fuck them i'm in my 80s <laughs> i made this money specifically to fund my own movies yep. i haven't made a movie since 2011 or whatever it was i'm going all in on the last one good this is it love it it's a recurring theme though yeah. with a lot of these things whether it's titanic or whatever avatar james cameron or francis ford coppola or whoever a lot of their movies they always act like they're going to be a huge disaster. Jaws was another one, right, and right. Then it, it turns yeah. into something. With costs rising, Paramount had then-Vice President Jack Ballard keep a close eye on production expenses. While filming, Coppola stated that he felt he could be fired at any point as he knew Paramount executives were not happy with many of the decisions he had made. Coppola was aware that Evans had asked Ilya Kazan to take over directing the film because he feared that Coppola was too inexperienced to cope with the increased size of production, Coppola was also convinced that the film editor, Aram Avakian, and the assistant director, Steve Kessner, were conspiring to get him fired. Avakian complained to Evans that he could not edit the scenes correctly because Coppola was not shooting enough footage. Evans was satisfied with the footage being sent to the West Coast and authorized Coppola to fire them both. Coppola later explained, like the Godfather, I fired people as a preemptory strike. The people who were angling the most to have me fired, I had fired. Hmm. Furthermore, Brando threatened to quit if Coppola was fired. Seemed like a fun culture to be a part of on this film set. Well, a lot of it was luck. I think there Uh was a lot of fun because Coppola is an actor's director, and he's very protective of the actors. I think the actors loved him. But as far as like stressful for Coppola, yeah, because Paramount had had some recent bombs. And as the budget increased, they started to pin, I think, a lot more hopes on this. And uh-huh. so then it becomes we have to be very protective of the money invested and oversee this. And Coppola was not their first choice because he really hadn't had a big hit or anything yet. People maybe forget that. He had been around a while. He had uh, had some other movies, but yeah. he was not really anybody anybody reliable right. yet. But a lot of things, as we've pointed out in countless episodes, seem like luck. Everything just sort of comes together, and from chaos born comes this thing, and it all works out somehow. It is wild. And it wasn't just Coppola. At one point or another, it seemed like almost anyone could be fired, including Al Pacino. 
They needed to move up the scene where he kills Salazzo and McCluskey in order to film a win. They needed to get him a win to convince Paramount executives that he was right. Wow. Because, again, Pacino was nobody. Right. A lot of these people were who Coppola wanted. Yeah. And the studio was not as convinced. I get it. They need a name. But I got to tell you, Pacino looks a star to me. Brando was another one. Yeah. Notoriously difficult to work with. Out of control. (laughs) He was not at a good point in his career. He had come off of a lot of flops. More on that when we do Apocalypse Now too. Well, by that point, he had at least had The Godfather, so he was kind of on the comeback trail, but this was a disastrous time. He was not who the studio wanted. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but yeah, he was another one that they felt like they might fire at any point. (laughs) Even though this goes on to be one of the most iconic performances of any character ever. The fears, as I said, mostly seem to stem from Paramount's recent box office failures, the amount of money at stake, and Coppola's relative inexperience. However, as we all know, he was absolutely the right man for the job. He's an actor's director cultivating the right environment to get the most out of his performers. He held improvisational rehearsal sessions that simply consisted of the main cast sitting down in character for a family meal. The actors and actresses couldn't break character, which Coppola saw as a way for the cast to organically establish the family roles seen in the final film. Now, we haven't done a ton of Coppola material on the podcast. We did The Outsiders and we did Dracula. But I remember when we did Dracula, there was a lot of rehearsal time, which is what actors love. Right. And so you get a real chance to live in the characters for a while and you know i think that was like a bold thing to do for a movie of this size with this kind of production and ultimately spoiler alert not only does he deliver a movie that is considered one of the great films of all time that delivers at the box office but it came in on time and under budget wow so he actually did everything that he possibly could as the director what did the final budget end up being it was between six and seven point two million. That is shocking for how epic and large the scale of it seems. It's just crazy that that's. How well, that was, was a it was a pretty decent sized budget for back then. Yeah, I mean we're talking fifty years ago. I know, but to not even break ten million though. It was also a family affair for Coppola, with him putting many of his relatives in the film. In chronological order of appearance, his sister, Talia Shire, Mm -hmm. plays Connie. Beloved by me. His mother, Italia Coppola, served as an extra in the restaurant meeting. His father, Carmine, was the piano player in the mattress sequence, and he composed the music for that part. His sons, Giancarlo Coppola and Roman Coppola, can be seen as extras in the scene where Sonny beats up Carlo. And I think uh, Francis himself is at the funeral, and then his daughter, Sophia, is the baby. Hmm. Not her last appearance in the trilogy. Playing Michael Rizzi in the baptism. She was three weeks old at the time of that shooting, so she was essentially born during production. The original Nepo baby. That's right. In a lot of ways. Yes. Not really. I'm sure there were plenty more before <laughs> that, but yeah. Coppola's did not shy away from the Nepo baby. No, no. Cinematographer Gordon Willis earned himself the nickname The Prince of Darkness since his sets were so underlit. It is a very dark movie. Paramount executives initially thought that the footage was too dark, 
Almost, until, yeah, frustratingly so in some parts. Until persuaded otherwise by Willis and Francis Ford Coppola that it was to emphasize the shadiness of the Corleone family's dealings. I disagree. I think it, I think it looks cool. Mostly. <laughs> Mostly cool. Which scenes are you talking about? Let me get back to you. <laughs> Unrewatch. Initially, Willis turned down the opportunity to work on the film because the production seemed chaotic to him. After Willis later accepted the offer, he and Coppola agreed not to use any modern filming devices, helicopters, or zoom lenses. Willis chose to use top light in the majority of the scenes due to Marlon Brando's eye makeup. He made use of shadows throughout the film and applied sepia tones to several scenes. Willis and Coppola agreed to interplay light and dark scenes throughout the film. But it wasn't always an easygoing relationship between those two because nothing was easygoing, really. <laughs> yeah. Their relationship was actually highly combustible. They would have screaming fights with a few broken props as a result. After one incident, such a loud noise exploded from Coppola's office that the crew thought that Coppola had shot himself. He'd only broken a door. <laughs> they also conflicted because Willis was very hard on the actors and actresses about hitting their marks with his low lighting scheme. If they missed, they would be filmed in total darkness. Coppola, on the other hand, considered himself a protector of the actors. He felt that he could get the most out of them by nurturing them. The influence and interaction with real-life gangsters is fascinating. Okay, It's a fascinating thing because during production, there's very real and potentially dangerous pushback from the idea of this film being made. But then after the film's release, everything changed. So during production, the Italian-American Civil Rights League, led by mobster Joseph Colombo, maintained that the film emphasized stereotypes about Italian-Americans and wanted all uses of the words mafia and Cosa Nostra to be removed from the script it is funny that when you're reading about the film and you're coming across this information, <laughs> he himself is described as a mobster. Yeah. <laughs> this does seem like something straight out of The Sopranos. Right, I Like know. the blatant hypocrisy. <laughs> Our family's been discriminated against for years. The League also requested that all the money earned from the premiere be donated to the League's fund to build a new hospital. Coppola claimed that Puzo's screenplay only contained two instances of the word mafia being used, while Cosa Nostra was not used at all. They were removed and replaced with other terms without compromising the story. The League eventually gave its support for the script. Earlier, the windows of producer Albert S. Ruddy's car had been shot out with a note left on the dashboard, which essentially said, shut down the movie or else. Whoa. However... As you can see from things like Goodfellas or The Sopranos or basically any gangster portrayals post-Godfather living, creating in a post-Godfather world, any kind of artistic push, the Godfather's influence is immeasurable. And I think that what's interesting is that it's a piece of art supposedly reflecting real life, mm -hmm. but it had influence on the subculture or world that it was portraying. Right. Because real-life gangsters responded enthusiastically to the film, with many of them feeling it was a portrayal of how they were supposed to act. Yeah. In other words, it was sort of like a how-to guide for people who were already in the life. It's sort of a glorified version of this business model. 
that they're operating. Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano, the former underboss in the Gambino crime family, stated, I left the movie stunned. I mean, I floated out of the theater. Maybe it was fiction, but for me, then, that was our life. It was incredible. I remember talking to a multitude of guys, made guys, who felt exactly the same way. According to Anthony Fiato, after seeing the film, Patriarcha crime family members Polly Intisu and Nikki Kisu altered their speech patterns closer to that of Vito Corleone's. Oh, yikes. Intisu would frequently swear and use poor grammar, but after the movie came out, he started to articulate and philosophize more. And what's interesting is that when you watch The Sopranos, that's basically what's being portrayed. These are guys that are sort of lower down, more middlemen, not quite at that kind of level of what's being portrayed in The Godfather, but yet that's who they want to emulate. Right. And they're constantly referencing The Godfather and trying to live up to that as a model for who they should be. (laughs) It's very strange. It's it's such a weird convergence of fact and fiction, reality and art and all these different things. It goes back to the way they treat this thing, this glorified nobility to this life that they're... Even though it is crime, there's yeah. a code to it. It's, I don't know if like fancy is the word, but there's almost this prestige to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's something we were talking about a little bit before we started recording about how you do sort of roll your eyes a little bit sometimes right. at how The Godfather and certain other artistic endeavors portray the mafia and portray this lifestyle. Like there is some sort of nobility to it. And even in this film, there's always this effort to make the Corleone family seem less terrible. They're the family that doesn't want to get into the drugs and the other guys, the other gangsters, mm-hmm. they're the bad guys. But Even though through most of this movie, they're always losing, it seems like. Well, that's how it is yeah, in movies. Right. They're the heroes. Yeah, yeah. So they have to come back at the end. They that's have to right. make the big baby yeah. face comeback. Exactly. Whereas, of course, they're just as bad and we're not really seeing necessarily... All of the terrible shit that Vito had to do to attain this position. In this particular movie, we're not going to touch much on the sequels because I think one day we will do Godfather Part 2. But in this particular movie, when you see what they do and who it affects, a movie producer. Who seems like not a great guy. A band leader who wouldn't let a guy out of a contract. Yeah. People that us as regular people don't relate to. Exactly. It's not... Oh, we're we have to pay protection. <laughs> People who seem CD anyway, little small business owners paying protection, and really they're under the thumb. You know, you're mm-hmm. not seeing that the the kind of stuff that yeah, you would get more into in The Sopranos, right? And things but like they that. feel less exploited in this. The small business owners, yeah. A film like this, with its limitless lore and legend, established stories told and retold, only to be denied or altered later by one of the principal parties involved, facts, opinions, myths, revised history, prejudicial memory, exaggeration, it all becomes part of the story of The Godfather. Who can keep it all straight? We're not going to be the definitive guide to this movie or anything like that. But let's get into it anyway. The film itself, there will be countless little detours along the way, but we'll get through it as only we can for episode 300. Sure. 
right away, I guess at the beginning, we are going to stop the narrative of several times to really get into each of the principal people of the film and talk about their casting and all that different shit. So it will be a little bit stop-starty at the beginning of the, the plot narrative here, but I think that's the best way to do it. In 1945, New York City, Corleone crime family Don Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, listens to requests during his daughter Connie's wedding, Connie played by Talia Shire, to a man named Carlo Rizzi, played by Gianni Russo. It's a very cool way to open the film, very artistic. I think that because of how big this movie is, how mainstream it is, how it plays on AMC, how your dad and your grandpa and all these people watch it. You forget the artistry of it. And this opening... Opening and closing, I would say. ...is very cool. You have this guy, I believe in America. (laughs) Awesome opening line from Bonacera. Right. And it sort of lets you in a little bit to what Coppola was thinking with this being a metaphor for capitalism in America and some of the stuff that... Bonacera says some of the stuff that Vito says throughout the film, and then finally building to that Robert Town written scene between Michael and Vito in the garden shortly before Vito passes away. Mm-hmm. And you sort of see what the actual important moments of the film are, aside from the obvious action sequences or right. people being whacked or the violence or anything like that. Like the little moments about what Coppola was mining in Puzo's novel, which is, let's face it, it is sort of like a trashy mass paperback style book mm-hmm. talking about Sonny's big dick and, <laughs> Hell you know, yeah. kind of the trashier elements of it and the crime and the seediness. But Coppola really was actually, I think, elevating it a lot uh-huh. by seeing the potential for something like that. And this is such a cool way to do it. And maybe to fly in the face of Matt's complaints about the film being too dark. It's sort of the way it comes out of darkness, and it's just... Yeah, this part looks really cool. Bonacera's face, um, and you're like, what even is happening here? When I think about the dark scenes that are a little bit more... Like, at the hospital and stuff, I'm almost, like, squinting. I think the one scene for me that is when they're in that train car when Salazzo has Tom. Oh, yeah, that one's really dark. It's sort of hard to tell what's happening. I think that's the only one for me. But yeah, the pacing of his whole delivery here is really cool, and the way that it builds to sort of veto coming into the movie. So this is a Sicilian tradition where you can ask favors of the father of the bride, and I guess he, as long as they're somewhat reasonable, he's not going to refuse them. It's one of my favorite hilarious moments in all of Sopranos when they're at Johnny Sack's daughter's wedding, and Johnny Sack is asking a favor from Tony, and Christopher's (laughs) like, oh, so it's true then. And Tony's like, no, it's supposed to be the other way around. I love the choice here, and it's always a great move in movies when you have an ensemble of characters to use a wedding, to use a big event right at the outset to introduce everyone. It's a half-hour-long sequence. Yeah, the first 20, 30 minutes of the film really is this own little thing where we're cutting back and forth between the actual wedding and then what's going on in Don's office. And like characters are weaving in and out of being the focus. In a lot of ways, I do see that this movie is the apex or at least like the culmination of the new American cinema movement that began in the late 60s because this is literally everything. And then you have a generation of actors who all look up so much to Marlon Brando. Mm -hmm. 
who then is not really that much older than them. Right. He's about 16 years older than Pacino and James Caan, but these are the the generation of guys that all I know worshipped him. This being my original exposure to him, I just always thought that he was a lot older at this time than he actually was because of the character that he's playing. Right, yeah, or like the old lady in Hook. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you just sort of That's buy the into the magic yeah. of movies. Yeah, you just think that Brando is this old in 1972. So this is truly a performance in every sense of the word, and sometimes things like this work, and sometimes things like this don't work, and you only right. have to look at the career of Coppola's own relative, Nick Cage, to see both in one career. And I think Brando himself, not every time in his whole life did things like this work out, but he clearly was making a lot of choices, using the the mouthpiece, mm-hmm. doing that voice, that slow, deliberate voice. There's nothing really, I don't think, in the novel that describes him in any way this is just sort of where he was going with this playing older with the makeup and the hair and the whole thing as we alluded to this was a bit of a career revitalization for Brando who had sort of fallen on hard times throughout the later parts of the 60s this leads to Last Tango in Paris Uh Superman and Apocalypse Now amongst other things Puzo himself was the first to show interest in having Marlon Brando portray Vito Corleone by sending a letter to Brando in which he stated Brando was the, quote, only actor who can play the Godfather. That does seem true now. Despite Puzo's wishes, the executives at Paramount were against having Brando, partly because of the poor performance of his recent films and also his short temper. (laughs) Coppola favored Brando or Laurence Olivier for the role. But Olivier's agent refused the role, claiming Olivier was sick. However, Olivier went on to star in Sleuth later that year. The studio mainly pushed for Ernest Borgnine to receive the part. Others considered were George C. Scott, Richard Conte, Anthony Quinn, and Orson Welles. Welles was Paramount's preferred choice at a certain time for the role. After months of debate between Coppola and Paramount over Brando, the two finalists for the role were Borgnine and Brando, the latter of whom Paramount President Stanley Joffe required to perform a screen test. However, Coppola did not want to offend Brando and stated that he needed to test equipment in order to set up the screen test at Brando's California residence. So they kind of tricked him into doing it. (laughs) Well, you can kind of see a screen test like setting him off. Then they did some sort of a subterfuge moment where they just slipped his test into the middle of a bunch of others. The studio eventually was kind of like, all right, this is fine. (laughs) Enough, yeah. I don't want to fight this anymore. And it ends up being this something unique performance, a a one-of-a-kind thing. There's nothing really like it. Can't envision anybody else being this role. Brando (laughs) wanted to make Corleone look like a bulldog, so he stuffed his cheeks with cotton wool for this audition. And then for the actual filming, he wore a mouthpiece made by a dentist. This appliance, by the way, is on display in the American Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, New York. Oh, good. Go check that out. Like the film itself, Brando's choices and overall performance feel like it could all turn disastrous at any moment, at least on paper. Right. It is one step away from being this cartoony thing that just doesn't work. And then somehow it does, which I think it's just the the right factors. You have the right director. 
you have Gordon Willis lighting it a certain way, which makes everything seem super serious and somber. Mm-hmm. You have a world-class roster of other actors all interacting. Everything just comes together and it works. Yep. But again, I would compare it to Nick Cage. And the reason I am saying Nick Cage, who is an actor that takes huge gambles and sometimes Definitely. they pay off and sometimes they don't, is because there really aren't a lot of actors in modern day to equate this to. There aren't that many people doing stuff like this. No. Vito Corleone's distinctive voice was based on real-life mobster Frank Costello. Marlon Brando had seen him on television during the Estes Kaufauer hearings in 1951 and imitated his husky whisper in the film. We're probably going to set a record in this podcast for me mispronouncing things. (laughs) So just get used to it right now. Too many names. Too many things going on with these names. I'm not great with it. It was a goofy... Weird set. There was a lot of mooning and pranks going on. Brando huh. was crowned best prankster, designated by a heavyweight style leather belt with the title Moon Champion. Wow. Bunch of dudes just oh. showing their ass to each other and to <laughs> other everyone else, including the extras, I'm sure. A lot of stuff that wouldn't fly today, but uh, I think mostly yeah. in good spirits though, not really anything too hilarious though for a dark, somber, almost tragic. Well, I movie. think that's why they were doing it, to keep it light. Right. Of course, and this a lot of this stuff has become legend. This is stuff that your grandmother knows about The Godfather, but it needs to be stated anyway. Brando did not memorize most of his lines and read from cue cards during most of the film. As a matter of fact, Marlon, who was the father of method acting, was famous for this. He felt that doing a cold open type reading for the cameras and then using that very first unpracticed take was the best way to get an authentic performance. He did the exact same thing for Superman. There are some famous pictures from the set with Robert (laughs) Duvall with the dialogue on his stomach. That's hilarious. On a piece of paper and things like that. The accommodations they were doing for this guy. (laughs) Puzo himself modeled the character of Don Vito on New York City mob bosses Joe Perfesi and Vito Genovese. Many of the events in the novel are based on actual incidents that occurred in the lives of those men and their families. Puzo based Don Vito's personality on his own mother's. Huh. The opening is crazy. This is how a lot of 70s films feel. There aren't a lot of things that feel like this now, where there's so many people, extras and characters, mixing, dancing, the FBI's out there gathering license plates on the parked cars. It probably took me several, several, several viewings before I ever realized that Barzini is introduced in this scene. Oh, yeah, they're all there. Right. He's the one that takes that film and cr- like crinkles it up, right. and that guy takes his picture, yeah. I'm always blown away by these epic period pieces, mm-hmm. because there's so much going on, it just feels impossible to get everyone on the same page. Like, what do you tell all these extras? How do you get this all to work? And I guess the only way to really do it is to act as if two people have just gotten married and this is a real reception. Right. And just do what you would be doing as if it was real, I guess. Yeah, and I don't we're know. just going to have character interactions going on over the course of, I guess they're probably filming certainly over several hours, but maybe days. Oh, yeah. This yeah. probably took days. And what they ultimately did, I think, was branch off of the house and mm-hmm. they actually used the yards from a lot of the area and became like a whole production to make it all work. But. Yeah, it's always cool. The cat held by Marlon Brando in the opening scene was a stray, 
that Coppola found while on the lot at Paramount Pictures. Wow. And was not originally called for in the script. Yeah, it is weird because it's one of those things that as time goes on, it's almost like pictures of Don Corleone or like holding the cat and stuff. You know, it's become yeah. more of a thing, even though it is just in this sequence. The cat was so content that its purring muffled some of Brando's dialogue and they had to be re-looped. <laughs> but I guess the cat was loving it. So let's move on from Vito over to Sonny, played by James Kahn. His full name Santino. He is the eldest son of Vito, but has not inherited his father's quiet, level-headed demeanor. No. Instead possessing a fiery temper and a propensity for violence. And sex, too. <laughs> yeah, he's just a got a lust for life. That's right. There is some debate, I guess, and Coppola has said some things about who was actually the oldest, and there's differences between the book and the movie. For our purposes, we're going with the traditional route that everyone goes with because Fredo has become definitive of the middle child. That's almost Mm -hmm. beyond question. But I think Coppola has said at times that Fredo is supposed to be the oldest, which doesn't make any sense. And it just seems contrarian. Yeah, I'm not throwing that out there to get people upset because I believe that it makes sense that Sonny is the oldest and that plays into what happens in part two and I all know, this different shit. I know, that's the thing. Shit. Even the way the movies play, it feels like it has to be that Sonny's the oldest. Yeah, and I think that's the way that it is in the book and everything, but I, I don't know. It's not really worth talking too much about. I just wanted to point out that there is a little bit of discrepancy there. For our purposes, we will not be acknowledging it, though. Sonny, also known for his big hog and his extramarital affairs. Yeah, really. It's like Tommy Lee. So Khan almost played Michael. Robert Evans always wanted him in the mix no matter what. So when Coppola got his way and Pacino was cast as Michael, Evans then insisted Khan play Sonny. Khan was a little bit more well-known than Pacino and Diane Keaton and even Robert Duvall. So that's where they were sort of trying to bank on having someone at least a little bit known. I know it's other um, than Brando. Easy to say this seeing the final product, but it just seems so right that James Kahn is Sonny, and maybe it's because of the career he goes on to have beyond this. Well, yeah, that's what I mean when I say luck. Yeah. Because when it doesn't exist and you right. can't quite see it, you don't really know. The unknown it's, is unknown, but yeah, yeah. once it all falls into place, it seems perfect. Right. And that's the, sort of the luck element that you didn't fuck it up by thinking of it differently. I know. And it's weird to think, what if? What if those roles were reversed? Khan ended up spending time with various disreputable characters in real life in order to understand the underworld lifestyle. He also credited his performance on the stage persona of Don Rickles. And that's sort of how he was emulating how he talks sometimes. And I kind of get it. Okay. I get what he means. I can see it. That delivery. Yeah. And everything. Almost He's a not, little over the top. Not as jokey and funny, mm-hmm. but sort of the way that he rapid fire, come back. Khan was evidently furious that a lot of his part was cut from the final version of the film. I guess there was a lot more oh, wow. character depth to Sonny, and you see a little bit more about everything. But He does have a heavy presence still. Puzo got the name Sonny from the son of Al Capone. James Kahn improvised the part where he throws the FBI photographer's camera to the ground. The actor's frightened reaction is genuine. Kahn also came up with the idea of throwing money at the man to make up for breaking (laughs) his camera. 
as he put it, where I come from, you broke something, you replaced it, or you repaid the owner, which is, of course, becomes this iconic thing that everyone knows and loves. Yeah, and something that pops up in other crime movies and shows where you casually throw the cash down on the ground. And if you notice and pay attention, this is the only time that actual money is seen in the entire film. Oh, wow. Which symbolizes the secrecy of the family's dealings. Eventually, Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, Vito's youngest son and a former Marine, arrives to the reception and introduces his girlfriend, Kay Adams, played by Diane Keaton, Poor Kay. to his family. She wasn't ready for this world. So casting the part of Michael, there's so many names in the mix. Martin Sheen and Dean Stockwell both auditioned. Rod Steiger auditioned, oh, <laughs> just, wow. despite being way too old. Yikes, and unattractive. Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, and Dustin Hoffman all were offered the part. Oh, wow. I think Nicholson turned it down because he felt like the role should be played by an Italian. Burt Reynolds was one of the people in the mix, although famously Brando refused to work with Burt Reynolds. (laughs) He considered Burt Reynolds a TV actor, but I think he had a personal thing with Burt Reynolds because... I want to say it was a Twilight Zone episode, but I'm not 100% sure. But there was some television anthology show, probably Twilight Zone, where Burt Reynolds did a character, which okay. I guess was maybe a spoof oh boy. of Marlon Brando, and he took it very personally. He was like, Waltz. He was like, Burt Reynolds ain't ever doing this picture. <laughs> <laughs> he made me look ridiculous. <laughs> Ryan O'Neill was a big favorite of Robert Evans because of the success of Love Story. But Pacino was who Coppola wanted and then eventually got the role. And then to further all of the luck and how things go and everything working out the right way and as they should, originally Robert De Niro was potentially going to play either Carlo or Pauly, huh? which would have changed everything. Yes. However, once Pacino was cast, it vacated a role in the film The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, which then De Niro took that part rather than being in Godfather, which then allows him to be young Vito in right. part two. So it all works out like you great said. for everyone. Yes. Now, as far as Kay goes, Joe Clayberg, Susan Blakely, Sybil Shepard, and Michelle Phillips screen-tested for the role of Kay. Coppola also considered Ann Archer, Karen Black, Genevieve Bajold, Julie Christie, Jennifer O'Neill... Allie McGraw, Jennifer Salt, and Blythe Danner before landing on Diane Keaton. She brings an understated quality to the performance. It's a thankless role. Yeah. So, But she has some shining moments in part two. Yeah, I think that at this point, if you were taking bets, you probably would have thought it's more likely to be a huge disaster than it is to be the defining film of our times. Right. And have multiple sequels and become this huge thing. So let's talk a little bit about Pacino. Please. Does not win Best Supporting Actor for The Godfather. Does not win Best Actor for The Godfather Part 2. Which, of course, then leads to a makeup Oscar for Scent of a Woman. Bizarre. Again. Never know how to explain these things. The Oscars are so fucking stupid. I don't know. I I just just can't believe that people care about this shit anymore. Well, every time we talk about it, it makes me think, man, is it dumb? How do they get it so wrong almost every every time? Yeah. (laughs) 
almost constantly everything's yeah. wrong. I, uh, it is wild. It's not just a recent thing that the Oscars suck. They always have been terrible. And the things that people win for are stupid. The things that are the most timeless, iconic things ever, people never win for. So everyone sort of thinks of Pacino as having two distinct versions of himself and two distinct voices. And in a way... Just in The Godfather, you kind of see two different versions of him. He gets Definitely. way more animated in the second half. And I think that's sort of what Paramount was fearing, was that they weren't understanding that he was giving a performance, that he right. was much more subdued in those early scenes. And, and they were thinking, this guy's a nothing. But this character goes through a change, so it's all part of it. Right, but they weren't looking yeah. at it like that. They were like, man, this guy just is not bringing anything to this, <laughs> not realizing that it was all going to be part of a transformation. Yeah. And then eventually you get to Godfather 3, and then he's in that completely different version of himself right. where he, he's talking like he's in heat already. Yeah, I was going to say it's a post-heat Al Pacino. Well, it wasn't post Great ass. Yeah. It's still pre-heat. Oh, though. is it? Okay. It's about five years yeah. before. Yeah, all right. Or four. Four or five years. What year did Part 3 come out? 91, I Okay. Think. And then Heat was like 95. Mm-hmm. It was 90 or 90. It might have been 90. I yeah, think. I know. Heat just seems like the 80s to me. Pacino's actual real-life grandparents were from Corleone, Sicily, so it seemed faded in the stars. Oh, yeah, definitely. We also meet Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen. He operates as the consigliere and is a lawyer for the Corleone family and is yeah. informally adopted as a member of the family, which is something they just sort of gloss over. Right. That seems like something you'd get more info on in a novel. For sure. <laughs> But they leave a lot for the audience to fill in, I would say. Yeah, which again is in, is indicative of the times mm-hmm. and how 70s films work and the pace and what's revealed and what's not beaten into your head. They just sort yeah. of leave it there for you to figure it all out. Now, as a kid, missing out on some of the bigger points that are being made and really just getting invested in the surface level value of the film and then I guess really the series... I was all 100% in on Sonny Corleone, Tom Hagen. Those were like my favorite characters. And then Sonny's dead and Tom kicked out of his role. (laughs) It's just funny, though, your perspective as a kid. And then it just like completely changes to like, oh, yeah, I get why Michael is the important character here. From the start of production, Coppola always wanted it to be Duvall. I don't really have any other potential casting people for the character of Tom. He's not on the list, but Luca Brasi wants to see you. Is this, is this necessary? He didn't expect to be invited to the wedding, so he wanted to thank you. Oh. Don Colleone, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. on the day of your daughter's wedding. And I hope that their first child be a masculine child. I pledge my ever-ending loyalty for your daughter's bridal purse. Thank you, Luca. My most valued friend. Don Colleone, I'm going to leave you now because I know you are busy. Thank you. Well, if your favorite characters were Tom and 
Sonny, mine was Luca Brazzi. Mm, yes. <laughs> also removed quickly. Lenny Montana was so nervous about working with Marlon Brando that in the first take of their scene together, he flubbed some lines. Coppola liked the genuine nervousness, and so he decided to use it in the final cut, and then later they added in the scenes of Luca practicing his oh, speech. Okay. So they really yeah. went for it. Right. I love Brando's face yeah. during that. <laughs> He just doesn't even know how to react to this guy. <laughs> it's very sweet and funny, and mm-hmm. it, the whole thing is is kind of charming. A lot of fun characters at the wedding, including that old guy who's singing with the suit that doesn't even seem like it fits, and I know. it seems like he's on the verge of death. He he's singing seems so like hard. He's in his own movie. <laughs> it's just like can't even do I know, it, Sandy. And it seems like it's all sexual innuendos, but nobody can really understand what it is. Sonny openly cheating even at the wedding. He takes that bridesmaid. Just making a mockery of his wife and his marriage. Yeah, which she seems to understand. The only way they really worked in the whole thing about his big dick was having her do that thing where she mm-hmm. kept like moving her hands apart. And then she's like turning to look at Sonny to, I guess, gauge his reaction or make him laugh or something. Yeah. And then he's not even there. And then she it's like she immediately knows. I know. Bummer. Like, you never told me you knew Johnny Fontaine. You want to meet him? Huh? Oh, well, sure. My father helped him with his career. For my client. He did? How? I have but one. Let's listen to the song. No, Michael. This heart I bring I have but one heart to share with you. I have but one dream that I can cling to. You are the one dream I pray comes true. Please, Michael, tell me. My darling, until I saw you. Well, when Johnny was first starting out, he was signed to this personal service contract. The big band leader. And as his career got better and better, he wanted to get out of it. Now, Johnny is my father's godson. And my father went to see this band leader. And he offered him $10,000 to let Johnny go. But the band leader said no. So the next day, my father went to see him, only this time with Luca Brazzi. And within an hour, he signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How'd he do that? My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head, and my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. That's a true story. Ma pallarezza stunga muri. That's my family, Kate. It's not me. According to Puzo, the character of Johnny Fontaine was not based on Frank Sinatra. However, it seems like the most shocking thing ever. It was widely assumed that it was, and uh-huh. Sinatra was furious. 
When he met Puzo at a restaurant, he screamed vulgar terms and threats at him. Sinatra was also vehemently opposed to the film. Due to this backlash, Fontaine's role was then scaled down to just a couple of scenes. So he arrives at the wedding, and this is where we as the audience are supposed to take it that Michael is, for the first time, revealing to Kay the truth about his family and his Uh father. Because Kay, at this point, just thinks that Vito is sort of an unscrupulous businessman. Right. In the olive oil business. But not really in the mafia or anything like that. But he makes it clear with this whole story about Johnny Fontaine and the contract and what his father did. Yeah. Yeah. Because at first she's like, who is this guy talking to himself? She's like kind of laughing, but also scared because he's kind of a scary looking guy. Yes. And then Michael's like, well, you know, he's a big part of the family. And I think she doesn't quite understand how significant Michael's father is yet and how even the scary guys like Luca Brasi look up to him and are nervous to even talk to him. But no matter how terrible and annoying Kay is in this film and how much of a loser she is, (laughs) her role is sort of vital because she is the outsider. She is a wasp from New England. Right. She is the furthest thing imaginable from being a part of this life or this family or having any connection to it. And so we're supposed to see this through her eyes at various points, mm-hmm. more so in part two, which again, we're not going right. to step on too much because I think we'll cover it one day. But throughout the trilogy, really, is how she is on the outside looking in. She's supposed to represent regular society. Yeah, and what Michael was going down a path towards, if not pulled back into this world. That's my family, Kay. It's yeah. not me, is what he tells her at this <laughs> wedding. Famous last words, really. We meet Fredo Corleone, played by John Cazale. Just a bumbling idiot right away. John Cazale passed away in 1978. He was in five films. They were all nominated for Best Picture. Shocking. The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two. Deer Hunter. The Deer Hunter, The Conversation, and Dog Day Afternoon. Which, does that also have Pacino? Yeah. I've never seen it. To hear them speak of him, he was considered the best among them in a lot of ways. He was a perfect character actor for the times. I don't know that he ever really necessarily would have transitioned into being a leading man. I don't know. His career was cut short, although he was still in his 40s when he died. He got a late start as far as a breakout. Famously dated Meryl Streep. Mm -hmm. They were together when he died. She was also in The Deer Hunter. He was dying during The Deer Hunter. They all loved John Cazale. Yeah. And his performance in this film is a little bit more restrained because he's only really in a couple of scenes. He's much more of a part of part two right? and has a much bigger role. But I figured we would at least talk about him now because, again, he doesn't really factor into much except for the Mo Green scene, which is way later in the movie. But it's awesome that he's in it and then has such a huge part of part two. Fontaine, whether he's based off Sinatra or not, is a popular singer in the story of the film. And he's also Vito's godson. He's seeking Vito's help in securing a specific desired film role. I don't know what to do. My voice is is weak. It's weak. Anyway, uh... I had this part in the picture, you know. It puts me right back up on top again. But 
this, uh, this man out there, he, he won't give it to me. The head of the studio. What's his name? Waltz. Waltz. He, he won't give it to me. And uh, he says, there's no chance. No chance. A month ago, he bought the movie rights to this book, the bestseller. And the main character is a guy just like me. Why, uh, you know, I wouldn't even have to act. Just be myself. Godfather, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? What is that nonsense? Ridiculous. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Mm. You look terrible. I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. It's too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Just go outside, enjoy yourself, and forget about all this nonsense. Watch it leave all to me. The smack that Vito gives Johnny Fontaine was not in the script. Marlon Brando improvised it. And Al Martino's confused reaction was real. According to James Caan, Martino didn't know whether to laugh or cry. It is so great, though, because the Vito character is so calm and understated in every moment leading up to this and then it's just this explosion you can act like a man yeah (laughs) (laughs) but that's the thing everything in this movie is so quotable there's countless lines and scenes that immediately get sucked into our culture and consciousness and they almost seem like parody because you've Mm -hmm. seen them done and redone and uh, reimagined and quoted and referenced and so basically 20 minutes, 15 minutes into the film, he's saying, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Oh, I know. As the Godfather, yes. like in the voice, right. doing the whole thing. And you're like, oh, okay, this is everything. This is where this is from, mm-hmm. if it's the first time you're seeing it or something. Because I think, like several other films, this is one of those movies that you may have experienced vicariously through other people or through adjacent media or other parody or reference or things like that before you ever even see it. I guess, by the way, it should be pointed out that all of the wedding guests who do make a request of Vito, all of them are all then called upon later in the film to return the favor. Mm -hmm. Nazarene the Baker asks for help arranging for Enzo to stay in America and marry his daughter. Enzo the baker. Enzo himself later arrives at the hospital, first with flowers, and then helps Michael to bluff McCluskey's assassination attempt. Johnny Fontaine, in return for a film role that revives his career, is signed to appear at Michael's casinos. Bonacera, who comes to avenge the attempted rape and beating of his daughter, they beat her like an animal, Mm -hmm. is called upon to prepare... Use all his... Sonny's body for his funeral. Skills. And so The Godfather has this casual 70s flow to the film. It's patient and relaxed. It's the polar opposite of the ADD, MTV-influenced cinematic shift that would come 15 to 20 years later. It feels very episodic, similar to a series of vignettes. Right. Suddenly, after this 30-minute wedding back and forth, 
between the people asking Vito and the wedding itself. Now we're shifting directly to California Mm -hmm. with Tom as he attempts to handle this Johnny Fontaine situation, which takes up its own 15-minute chunk. Yes. And you're not necessarily cutting back to anything else. Right. You're just 15 minutes in California with this story. And it almost feels like this needless side quest, but it's sort of the thing that establishes the realness of what the Corleone family is capable of. We actually see it. Yeah, you had to give him a win early in the yeah. movie, show what he's capable of, show what he can get done. So Tom is attempting to persuade studio head Jack Waltz to offer Johnny this part. John Marley plays Waltz, one of the many memorable, hilarious characters. (laughs) Just a douche. At first, Waltz refuses and even insults Tom, and then later he more politely denies the request once he realizes Tom's legitimacy, who Mm -hmm. he represents. But he still says no. He actually takes Tom to his stable and shows him his show horse, Khartoum, who I guess he could potentially be a racing horse, but he's like, I'm not going to race him. Yeah. I'm going to put him out to stud. (laughs) (laughs) Khartoum, Khartoum. Corleone, Johnny's godfather. To the Italian people, that's a very religious, sacred, close relationship. I respect that. Just tell him he should ask me anything else. But this is one favor I can't give him. He never asks a second favor when he's been refused the first. Understood? You don't understand. Johnny Fontaine never gets that movie. That part is perfect for him. It'll make him a big star. I'm going to run him out of the business. And let me tell you why. Johnny Fontaine ruined one of Walt's International's most valuable protégés. For five years, we had her under training, singing lessons, acting lessons, dancing lessons. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on her. I was going to make her a big star. And let me be even more frank. Just to show you that I'm not a hard-hearted man, that it's not all dollars and cents. She was beautiful. She was young. She was innocent. She was the greatest piece of ass I've ever had, and I've had them all over the world. And then Johnny Fontaine comes along with his olive oil voice and Guinea charm. And she runs off. She threw it all away just to make me look ridiculous. And a man in my position can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. Now you get the hell out of here. And if that goomba tries any rough stuff, you tell him I ain't no band leader. Yeah, I heard that story. Thank you for the dinner and a very pleasant evening. Maybe your car could take me to the airport. Mr. Corleone is a man who insists on hearing bad news immediately. Waltz soon complies, though, after waking up in his bed with the severed head of his prized racing horse cartoon. This was something that Coppola didn't even particularly like from the book, but he realized that it was too iconic to get rid of it. Right. Which, again, as we both pointed out you kind of needed the win for the corleone family to show something on that they can get done that's right because they do take a lot of l's throughout the movie the violence in the movie nothing what we would come to know later on but i would say for the time period kind of graphic in a subtle way because it's not over the top blood and most of the blood doesn't look very good well, I think it's because it's a three-hour-long movie and 95% of it is very restrained and normal, but then it does sort of erupt yeah. grotesquely. Yeah, this was a scene that animal rights activists had a problem with. I because would suspect so. 
they did use a real horse head. Hmm. During rehearsals, a false head was used, but then for the film shot, a real horse's head was used, acquired from a dog food factory. Wow. Did not know. According to John Marley, his scream of horror was real as he was not informed that a real head was going to be used. Yikes. However, that seems like more one of those PR stories that sort of hypes the thing up because- the way that it's filmed, it's, it would be like, what is it, I know. screaming for real multiple times? And yeah. they do all these different angles. And it seems like maybe they exaggerated it a little bit. But yeah, just the idea that they actually got this from a dog food. Yikes. Is so disgusting. Right. In that scene, you can see an Oscar on his bedside table. I do. That's, I did. Co- that's Coppola's Oscar this, for this writing was, Patton. This was the first viewing that I ever noticed that. Yeah. So Coppola did win an Oscar as a writer, yeah, which him. is some of his bona fides at this point. Yeah. But yeah, the directing stuff hadn't quite hit hit as anything close to where he would go in his career. So not only is this scene iconic, it also provides the real weight of the dawn, but it should be pointed out every few minutes you're stumbling upon something legendary and memorable. So it, yes. it almost feels redundant to keep saying it, but almost every segment of the film you're like, oh, this part, holy shit. Right. Talk about a scene packed with key moments. Back in New York, we're already nearing Christmas. Drug Baron Virgil Salazzo, played by Al Letary, asks Vito to invest in his new narcotics business and for protection from the law. Vito declines, citing that involvement in narcotics would alienate his political connections. So I guess something we should point out here. We're going to later get into the other major crime families in New York. But the one thing that the Corleone family has is a lot of political influence and they have a lot of politicians and police on the payroll in their pocket as part of That's like their big thing. Yeah, and it is 100% tied to Vito in that relationship. This is the big turning point in the film. This is what's going to drive a lot of the action moving forward. Tom and Sonny both clearly see the benefit in getting involved in the heroin trade, but this is something that Vito does not want to do. It's a bridge too far. He sees it as something on a different level from the gambling and the alcohol and even the women, which I guess is an allusion to prostitution. He Uh sees this as something worse and beyond. The other things that police are able to turn a blind eye to, and this is not in that category. At least according to him. Right. We don't really know because we don't hear it directly from the police. True. But he suspects. Yeah. The other heads of the five families of New York seem willing to jump in. This becomes a point of conflict. And so the idea here is the question you're asking yourself, or they are in the film at least, is are the times passing the dawn by? Suspicious of Salazzo's partnership with the Tatalia crime family, Vito sends his enforcer, Luca Brazzi, to the Tatalias mm-hmm. on an espionage mission. I just want to say this is something that I've thought more about in subsequent viewings, and maybe there is a little bit something more to it passing the Don by. Is he sending Luca Brazzi to certain death, or he just doesn't think that people could get one up on him? He might be a little bit underestimating where this is at. Yeah. I guess it's the Barzini revelation later in the movie that makes him be like, oh, maybe this was a dumb move, when I just thought it was Tatalia. Yeah, and I don't think he realized how far along this was all. This was like something that Tatalia, Barzini, whoever, mm-hmm. but Salazzo as the front man, 
they were moving forward with this 100%, and they decided to give Corleone the chance to be in on it and help. Right. He declined, so that to them means we're already heading towards the war, Mm -hmm. which is something that it takes the Corleone family, including Tom and even Sonny to a certain extent, like a little bit of a delayed reaction. Like they don't understand that they've already... Yeah. We're already headed into this. And by the time they're in it, they're like already on their heels. Right. Meanwhile, Michael and Kay are living in oblivion. This is sort of their happy and normal time period, sort of getting ready for Christmas. It's clear that Kay knows these people because she talks about buying them presents and everything, mm-hmm. but she, they're, they're just not a part of this well, at all. And I guess a important factoid for where Michael's at at this point in his life, they're not staying with the family. They're staying in right. a hotel in New York. I don't even know if words can fully describe how bad it goes for Luca. The <laughs> ruse is seen through immediately. Yeah, and... When I talked about the violence, this is one of those scenes because the way that he's strangled, it's like his head is exploding. Yeah, there's a lot of people grotted. Uh-huh. It's, it's not like a normal strangulation. It's like a whole right violent way to die. Just a total disaster. He's killed during the initial meeting with Salazzo and Bruno Tattaglia. Almost simultaneously while that's happening, Tom is kidnapped by Salazzo and yeah. some men. So it's clear that a move is being made. Right. I just want to say something that always jumped out to me. Bruno Tattaglia, when he goes to light the cigarette for Luca, and Luca kind of looks away, and he makes that look to motion to somebody in the room, and it's just how menacing it is. Yeah. And it kind of speaks to the duality of what's going on here, but it like always stuck with me as a kid as like almost like a scary moment. At a fruit stand... While Vito is being chauffeured by his son, Fredo, enforcers gun down the Don. Fredo, unfortunately, as is the story of his life, can't really rise to the occasion. No. And we learned... Just drops his gun and then sits there sobbing, (laughs) screaming, Papa. (laughs) Just pathetic. As we learned prior to this, Polly, the usual driver, called out sick. Which Vito does kind of gawk at but i was like well wouldn't you have known that earlier in the day how did you get there well i thought he was at the house oh was he i thought they were at like whatever office like where the they office met so the oh okay oh i don't know i yeah, mean they, well sure. no they go they're in the city they go to a fruit stand outside of it one of the all-time botched jobs by these would-be hitmen there's a lot of them in this movie they're standing right there firing shots at them and they don't finish the job i know i always thought it was cool how michael finds out right when him and Kay walk past the newspaper headline because i think this was a time where there would be like late additions to the newspaper and mm-hmm. so it is possible that it happened earlier that same day or yeah something to like that like they're in a movie right they don't know obviously decades before cell phones and the internet yeah. and all this shit. And they could have been like trying to contact him at the hotel, but if they're just out all day, right. That you just don't know. Meanwhile, they're in that abandoned diner car. That's where they're holding Tom Salazzo and his men. And it is all darkness. Yes. It's very dark. It's hard to even get a gauge of where they are. They're telling Tom that the Don is dead and Tom is sort of believing them and crying basically. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of the other Corleone capos, the famous guys here. Clemenza, played by Richard S. Castellano, famously not 
in part two, which I think is a huge detriment. Clemenza is great. Mm -hmm. We'll talk more about him. On the periphery, and doesn't really factor into much until the end, is Sal Tessio, played by Abe Vigoda, who, it should be pointed out, lived all the way until 2016. Dude. He looks so old in this movie. Would be in commercials like 30 years after this and look the same. (laughs) Some people are born looking old, and then they just stay that way until they die. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) You're already that guy. That's right. I would actually say that Tessio looks a little bit younger than you. (laughs) Fair. In all fairness, me without a shirt on is basically Clemenza at this point. (laughs) But he's unashamed. Neither am I. Yeah. With Sonny now essentially in command with Vito incapacitated, Salazzo pressures Tom to persuade Sonny to accept the narcotics deal. The thing that they didn't really count on, though, is that these idiots that they sent to do the job would fail. Yeah, they definitely didn't count on that. And then I love that they're just so open with Tom. They're like, oh, he's still alive. Fuck. They just tell him right right to him. Now we're fucked. But they also didn't count on the fact that Sonny would never do a deal with them now, no matter what he thought about the narcotics deal before. Because of his anger and his temper, he was never going to listen to Tom. There was never going to be a peace because he just wasn't that type of guy. And the way the movie is portrayed... It seems like Tom is giving good advice, but is it? Then later, it almost seems like he's punished for the advice he gives during these crucial times. Well, that goes into the underlying feeling that it's possible that Vito's sons, as much as they love and respect him, don't see things the same way as him. And and Michael would not have been as peaceful as Vito was. And he's sort of out of respect waits until Vito's dead to really True. Yes. follow through with everything that he feels like needed to be done. Right. But I don't know, because there is a lot of stuff when it comes to Vito and Michael's relationship and then that eventual transfer of power that feels like it's off screen, mm-hmm. because then the Don sort of steps back and steps down, and then when Tom has to basically account for what happened during Sonny's brief reign, yes, that well, seems like that's... Michael's decision. Even the way that Vito says it. Yeah. He's like, I counseled Michael, but, you know, but. Yeah. And just sort of implying that I don't necessarily see it the same way, but it's his decision that you are being demoted, basically. Yeah. Tom is in an important role, and it's clear that Vito has invested in him. At this point, Salazzo and his partners still need the political influence of the Corleone family to make this work the way they want it to. But in addition to the attempted hit on Vito, they send the bulletproof vest with the fish wrapped in it as a message, a Sicilian message that Luca Brasi sleeps with the fish is basically like their number one goon mm-hmm. murderer is already taken out. One little note, Clemenza's wife is great. Love yeah. her. Love her. Definitely. Her brief little moment. <laughs> Doesn't seem to care. Winnie's coming back. She's still got the kiss for him. Mm-hmm. He's like, probably late. And she's just like, all right, give me a kiss. <laughs> just stands by her man, no matter how fat he is. Sonny references going to the mattresses, which is a phrase that seemingly was invented for this movie and then has become a thing. Oh, yeah. To mean a thing, like Sopranos. going to war. Right. Get it. Yeah. It's been taken from this. Of course. Sonny realizes that Polly sold out the old man by when he called in sick. For all of the 
backstabbing, double-crossing, selling out that goes on in this movie, it's hard for it to ever not be clear if you're the perpetrator. (laughs) Of course. I know. (laughs) Well, I guess the idea is that maybe it would work and then things would just sort of fall into place. But yeah, once you did that, why would you ever allow yourself to... You should be on the right. run at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. You'd have to just be like, okay, I'm part of the Tatalia family now. They take Polly out to that tall grass. I don't know if it's right there. Is is it? But in one of the sequences, you can see the Statue of Liberty yeah. in the background. Right, yeah. They shoot him in the back of the head, leave the gun, take the cannoli, which was ad-libbed by Castellano and became one of the famous yes. lines of the picture. quoted endlessly. And then when Sonny asks about him, oh, Polly, you won't see him no more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great way of putting it. Oh, Polly, you yeah. won't see him no more. Sonny retaliates for Lucas killing with a hit on Bruno Tatalia, which is not shown in the film. Right. Which is, I think, a choice because this whole movie builds up to the ending, which feels like we're getting it back. Because, like you said, there's a lot of L's for the Corleone family. And this would be a W for them, but we don't see it. Vito survives the shooting and is visited in the hospital by Michael, who finds him unprotected after NYPD officers on Salazzo's payroll cleared out Vito's guards. Michael manages to thwart another attempt on his father's life by moving him to a Mm -hmm. different room and waiting for backup, but then he is sucker-punched in the face by police captain Mark McCluskey, played by Sterling Hayden, which is always funny that he's in this movie because he's... The Doctor Strange love guy, mm-hmm. and he's in like a lot of noir films, Asphalt Jungle, stuff like that. The Just killing. seems like another era of an actor. Yeah, yeah. One thing about the whole hospital sequence is it, it takes on a little bit of a different vibe than the rest oh, of the yeah. movie. Well, has. I have that too. Ominous okay. feeling, creepy, yeah. dread music I was playing. Say, it feels like a horror movie sequence. A little bit, yeah. Because yeah. at this point, Michael is not the Michael he becomes later. Right. He, he is sort of a, a regular citizen. Again, I'll reference watching this as a kid a lot because it was one of those things that kind of changed my whole perspective of movies, but I still was not able to look into, like, what does this mean when I was a kid? And they have the whole sequence with Enzo where after the car goes by, he can't even light a cigarette and his hand's shaking, and Michael calmly grabs it and lights it. Yeah. And you're like, oh, <laughs> yes. Michael's hand does not shake in these moments. That was similar to the Luca Brazzi thing, too, where that was the first thing they shot with that guy, and he was actually just nervous, too. So they were able to use that into the scene. So Enzo the Baker called into duty. After the punch from McCluskey, Pacino wears a facial prosthetic, and then he's such a lunatic as an actor, he literally had his jaw wired shut to help with the performance. Hmm. Sonny now is just straight up itching for war, and then Tom is the one maintaining the need to keep things business, not personal. Yeah, obviously Sonny is the de facto leader, but he does rely heavily on Tom's counsel, even though he constantly disagrees with it. He does go along with it. Yeah, well, part of the movie and part of the story and how this is a family story, you have the dichotomy between Sonny and Michael, where... It's sort of two sides of a coin. You have the hot-blooded Sonny mm-hmm. versus the cold-blooded Michael and the difference in the approach where Michael has that same patience of his father, even though I think he's way more ruthless right, and unforgiving. Yes. Because I think, let's be honest, Vito knows... I don't want to spoil the whole movie, but I'm sure people know The Godfather. Yes. Vito knows 
the truth about Carlo and all these different right. things. But he he doesn't want to do what Michael is willing to do, which is truly make his daughter a widow. Yeah, do different shit. Right. When he says that he is not going to make any inquiries into Sonny's eventual death, he's sort of just, whatever happened, he's willing to let it go. But well, he understands that this is the only way that it ends, and he doesn't want to lose more sons. Exactly. So, yeah, that hot-blooded versus cold-blooded and how that all plays out and which one is more beneficial to be this guy, to yeah. move into the, the big seat, if you will. But something that's not really that spoken about in the movie, though, is... They talk about Tom being basically adopted by the Corleone family, but I do think he was Sonny's friend and Sonny's age, and that's more of a difference when Sonny is no longer in the mix. I do think that's a factor off screen. Yeah, yeah, and I think that if you want to trace the transformation of Michael, you can start with the punch from McCluskey, mm-hmm. then obviously things continue yes. to get escalated. Hey, Michael, come here. Let me look at you. You look beautiful. It's beautiful. You're gorgeous. Hey, listen to this. The turf, he wants to talk. He got you imagine a nerve on his son of a bitch, eh? Craps out last night, he wants a meeting today. What'd he say? What'd he say? He wants us to send Michael to hear the proposition. And the promise is that the deal is so good that we can't refuse, eh? What about Bruno Tatari? It's part of the deal. Bruno cancels out what they did to my father. Sonny, we ought to hear what they had to say. No, 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 no more. Not this time, Consigliere. No more meetings, no more discussions, no more Salazzo tricks. You give him one message, I want Salazzo. Not it's all out war, we go to the Some back. Some of the other families won't sit still. They may hand me Salazzo. Your father wouldn't want to hear this. This is business, not personal. They shot my father. Even the shooting of your father was business, not personal, Sonny. Well, then business will have to suffer, all right? Hey, listen, do me a favor, Tom. No more advice on how to patch things up. Just help me win, please, all right? I found out about this Captain McCluskey who broke Mike's jaw. What about him? Now, he's definitely on Shalazzo's payroll and for big money. See? McCluskey has agreed to be the Turk's bodyguard. What you have to understand, Sonny, is that while Shalazzo is being guarded like this, he is invulnerable. Now, nobody has ever gunned down a New York police captain, never. It would be disastrous. All the five families would come after you, Sonny. The Corleone family would be outcast. Even the old man's political protection would run for cover. So do me a favor. Take this into consideration. All right, wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. I don't care what Salazzo says about a deal. He's gonna kill Pop. That's it. That's the key for him. Gotta get Salazzo. Mike is right. Let me ask you something, Professor. I mean, what about this McCluskey? Huh? What do we do with this copy? They wanna have a meeting with me, right? It will be me, Kluski, and Salazzo. Let's set the meeting. Get our informers to find out where it's going to be held. Now, we insist it's a public place, a bar, a restaurant, some place where there's people so I feel safe. 
They're gonna search me when I first meet them, right? So I can't have a weapon on me then. But if Clemenza can figure a way to have a weapon planted there for me, then I'll kill them both. <laughs> hey, what are you gonna do? Nice college boy, huh? Didn't want to get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You gotta get up close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. Come here. Mwah! You're taking this very person. Tom, this is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal. Where does it say that you can't kill a cop? Come on, Mikey. Tom, wait a minute. I'm talking about a cop that's mixed up in drugs. I'm talking about a, a, a dishonest cop, a crooked cop who got mixed up in the rackets and got what was coming to him. That's a terrific story. And we have newspaper people on the payroll, don't we, Tom? They might like a story like that. They might. They just might. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. Salazzo and McCluskey request to meet with Michael and settle the dispute. And then, just like that, he's involved. He wasn't involved. He was a civilian. But mm-hmm. now he is. But he does involve himself. Well, yeah, he, of course, wants to right. go for the move. Yeah. Because he's already showing a little bit of what is going to make him the guy. Tom is saying that they can't just kill a police captain, but then all of a sudden they're planning to do just that. Uh-huh. There's really no resolution to what Tom says. He's yeah. like, we can't do it, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I guess the one thing is that Michael does point out that they have newspaper people right. and they can just start to spin, spin it, it and yeah. basically reveal the truth of who McCluskey is and how he's involved in the drug rackets and all this different shit. But And that'll help fan the flames. It does seem like an unmovable obstacle obstacle and then it's just like well we're gonna do it anyway (laughs) speaking of the sopranos which we have several times james Mm -hmm. Kahn originally heard the phrase bada bing from his acquaintance the real life mobster carmine persecco and he improvised its use in the film then of course they named the strip club that in the sopranos michael will agree to the meeting while all the while hatching a plan with sonny and clemenza to kill both salazzo and mccluskey at the meeting location it is a little bit weird. They get into some stuff that I'm not entirely sure if it's real. The special tape. Oh, yeah. With the fingerprints. Right. Like, what special tape? What I know, are you talking make it about? untraceable. I got to tell you, I wouldn't have thought that there was much like CSI work going on in this era to really tie these weapons back to people. I don't know when that all. Really this would have been post World War II. Jagger Hoover and the FBI was starting to, I think they were probably starting to do fingerprints. They yeah. didn't have DNA or anything. Right, kind of right. Shit, but. I just feel like it would have been pretty easy to get rid of a gun and have it never traced back to you at this point. It's pretty funny that Clemens has got some Hitler and World War II opinions that yeah. he's just willing to share. They should have never let Hitler get away with that. That was their mistake. <laughs> just okay. Thanks, Clemenza. Well, he's trying to tie it into their current situation. I love the part where they're just hanging around before the meeting, eating the Chinese food. You can tell that the shit that Coppola was doing and planning and, and the improv 
sessions they would have and the rehearsal sessions. These are lived in characters. Oh yeah, and the little touches of these different things. It's not just that they have the Chinese food because, of course, you can just have a scene with characters with Chinese food. I just mean they're just kind of like sitting around right. and this talking. Is their lives. And they feel casual. Yeah, yeah you. There's just a way with some of these 70s movies where it just feels like these are the people, sort mm-hmm. of like Jaws. Right. You know, the characters in Jaws, you're kind of like, these are these people. Yes. Turns out that the meeting is going to be at a family restaurant in the Bronx. And this whole thing, of course, is an awesome sequence. Start to finish, they do the fake out as if they're going to New Jersey. Then they pull a U-turn. Mm-hmm. It seems like Michael might be... A little panicked for a second. Up Shit's Creek without a paddle. So basically the idea is they're going to find out in advance where the meeting is and they're going to plant a gun in the bathroom. And then when they do have a guy in McCluskey's precinct, because he's the police captain, he has to be on call, so he has to sign out to a phone number where he's going to be. That's how they figure it out. They're going to plant this gun. Yeah, They have this whole plan of him going to the bathroom, getting the gun, the whole thing. And then it gets faked out, like, oh, maybe they're not going to go there, but then they do. It does seem like they would have known earlier on that McCluskey had to be signed out. Maybe yeah. not what, where he was signed out, but they would have known that he had to be, and they were just waiting to get what it was going to be. Well, sometimes the dialogue is just a, for the viewer's yeah, I benefit. Know. Right. I'm here for it. At the meeting in the restaurant, Salazzo speaks to Michael in Sicilian so rapidly that subtitles cannot be used. He begins with, I am sorry what happened to your father was business. I have much respect for your father, but your father, his thinking is old-fashioned. You must understand why I had to do that. Now let's work through where we can go from here. When Michael returns from the bathroom, he continues in Sicilian with, Everything all right? I respect myself, understand, and cannot allow another man to hold me back. What happened was unavoidable. I had the unspoken support of the other family dons. If your father were in better health without his eldest son running things, no disrespect intended, we wouldn't have this nonsense. We will stop fighting until your father is well and can resume bargaining. No vengeance will be taken. We will have peace, but your family should interfere no longer. Good to know. So Michael is driven to a restaurant in the Bronx. He has this meeting. He retrieves the planted handgun in the bathroom, and then Michael comes out of the bathroom, shoots both men dead. The sound of the passing train was added later to increase the tension and suspense. One of the things I thought was hilarious was how no one in the restaurant screams. I know. There's no screams to this. They're just like, oh, God, again? <laughs> yeah, people not that broken up about it. Originally, they intended to have an intermission here as he's running away, and then you can kind of tell by the music. It's sort of swirling right. as like a climax-type music. Bye. Yeah. Coppola thought it ruined the flow of the film, and they did away with the intermission. George Lucas put together the mattress sequence, the montage of the crime scene photos and the headlines about the war between the five families as a favor to Coppola for helping him fund American graffiti. He asked not to be credited. Lucas used photos from real crime scenes. The corpse on the ground near a chain link fence is Frank Nitti, a.k.a. the enforcer, Al Capone's right-hand man who had not been murdered but actually shot himself. Oh, wow. During the scene, Coppola's father, Carmine, is the piano player. So Lucas actually did work as basically an editor on the film, although he was not one of the people nominated because he wasn't credited. There were a couple other editors as well. But he did a lot of stuff. Cool. The family uses their newspaper connections to sort of put a spin zone on the story, start getting the word out there that, okay, yeah, there was a mob hit on a police captain, but wait, he wasn't exactly like a 
a, a legitimate guy. What exactly was he doing at this Italian restaurant? How's the Italian food in this yeah. restaurant? <laughs> like, all right, dude. Just such a dork. I know. Embarrassing himself. I frisked him. <laughs> what did he say? Like, I'm, I frisked a million guys. Or yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. Like, all right. A million punks. In addition to the aforementioned Burt Reynolds and Robert De Niro, there were some other actors potentially in the mix for various parts that would have drastically changed the Godfather and pop culture history had they end up being cast in the film. Among them, Sylvester Stallone, who took the rejection as a sign to go write his own material, which led to Rocky, and Elvis Presley, who evidently was trying hard to be in the film as well. Oh, wow. But we all know how that went because we all saw the film Elvis. And sure did. Colonel Tom wouldn't let him be in any movies that weren't stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Despite a clampdown by authorities for the killing of a police captain, the five families erupt into open warfare. So the five families are the Corleones, the Tatalias, the Barzinis, the Cuneos, and the Strachis. Yeah. Representing all the different boroughs of the city. Which, they don't really get too into this, but they say several times the other families will come down on us. Not really clear that they're portraying that during the war, but wouldn't that be the case? That they would all just be against the Corleones? A little bit, yeah. I think that's what those newspapers were for. Those, yeah. Just signifying that people were killed that we don't know. Right. But they're all part of this. Vito returns home from the hospital while Michael takes refuge in Sicily, hiding out till the heat cools. A lot of walking. Just doing a lot of walking in Italy. Meanwhile, Fredo is sheltered by Mo Green in Las Vegas. I'm going to learn the casino business. <laughs> Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Vito, not thrilled to learn it was Michael who killed Salazzo. Yeah. They kind of have to tiptoe around that information. because We don't really get, I think, as much to the Vito-Michael backstory as there is. Yeah, it's sort of implied. Yeah. There's a lot of pride that Michael fought in the war, and then later, when they have that conversation, he reveals his dreams for Michael, which was Senator Corleone right. or Governor Corleone. He he thought that he could have Michael be the first guy to take the family legitimate, and then that clearly isn't going to happen mm-hmm. because Sonny is dead by that point, right. and Fredo is an idiot. It does seem like Vito's initial plan is that Sonny is going to take over with Tom serving in the role that he's serving. Obviously, plans change. But he knows that it's never going to be Fredo. <laughs> no. There's never a thought that yeah. it could be Fredo. Carlo, Connie's husband, is always kept at arm's length, and there's a lot of tension building there because of that. Because Corleone, Sicily was too developed, even in the early 70s, the Sicilian town of Savoca outside Terramino was used for shooting the scenes where Michael is in exile Too instead. developed. There was like a McDonald's there. Probably. Yeah. Something. It yeah. just it didn't look how they wanted it right. to look. It is cool. The Sicily stuff is almost like its own separate little movie. There's not a lot of cutting back to New York City at first. There is eventually, but you kind of get that period where you're kind of in Sicily for right. a few minutes, and it's these extended sequences of Michael chilling in the countryside. We find out there's not a lot of men around because they're all dead because of vendettas. Some life. Which I still don't really know what yeah. they're even talking about. <laughs> Probably over women. <laughs> over Apollonia. Yeah. We meet Apollonia, played by Simonetta Stefanelli, who's 
daughter is the woman in the American with George Clooney. Another. I guess we would just say good genes in the family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so everyone apparently is in love with Apollonia. She's this young, beautiful girl in the area. And then they have that awkward moment where yeah. they're like talking about her and asking this man about her. And then the man ends up being her father who then flips out. Everyone in love with her, including a young me, and I can imagine a young you. Sure. Seeing this movie yeah. for the first time. And then Michael decides to just go all in. He's like, fuck K, I'm never going back. <laughs> he took one look at Apollonia. So he Italy's great. In order to smooth it over with her dad, he basically insinuates that he wants to be her husband, which I guess is good. <laughs> I don't know. These courtship things are very strange mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> like if you announce you want to marry someone that you've never talked to, but you've just seen. What are your reasons for wanting to be in this marriage? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so they do this whole courtship thing where he requests to meet her with their supervision and permission. And then there's a lot of dates with like chaperones, like all those girls trailing. And then the bodyguards are trailing them. And it's like a whole thing. But Michael seems like he's willing to do whatever it takes. And then there's a quick marriage and a whole thing going on there. Kay, meanwhile, back in America, completely oblivious, showing up at the compound with letters, and <laughs> Tom is just like, oh, my God, Kay, please. move on. It's Let me a, call you a taxi. Embar- you're embarrassing yeah. yourself. <laughs> so back at home, Sonny finds his sister, Connie, bruised and beaten, mm-hmm. and he just fucking loses it, publicly beating the shit out of Carlo and threatening to kill him. In one of the worst beatdowns ever taken by any dude in a public forum ever. Just a legendary all-time beating in a way that... <laughs> Using it, foreign objects. It's basically so bad that it leaves Carlo with no choice. Of course he's going to have to be involved in a plot to get Sonny killed because yeah. there's no other recourse after There's no this. coming back, yeah. It's so bad. So they shot this whole fight sequence over four days. And apparently there was some real bad blood between James Kahn and Gianni Russo. Oh, wow. Although Kahn has denied it. I don't know. Who knows what's sure. factor right. fiction with this shit. There are some glaring misses in the fight choreography, which you have to mention. It's one of the fakest looking fights at times. True, true. The one punch, it's like it's yeah, miles away. Miss. Yeah. But Seems like maybe there was one or two that had some incidental contact, though. Not only is Carlo a piece of shit woman beater, but he's also a fucking idiot. Yeah. Her father is Don Corleone. I know. Enough said, but then her brother is a fucking lunatic. I know. Who's got the broadest shoulders I've ever seen on a man. <laughs> yeah. They're like <laughs> busting through his tank top. <laughs> Just a f- fucking moron. He has like custom tailored suspenders to fit his shoulders. Of course it's horrible to beat a woman or your wife or whatever that goes without saying but beyond that just the idiocy of thinking you can just act like this in this family although her mom's like don't interfere (laughs) (laughs) like thanks mom (laughs) yeah that's a weird moment too because not to give carlo any excuse whatsoever but it does seem like a lot of his rage stems from the impotency of his life like yes. he thought he was marrying into this big deal family and he was going to play a part in it they and even at the wedding job sitting on a stoop yeah Vito says no yeah that's not gonna happen don't let him in on anything i actually took the shit that he was doing on the stoop as like his own thing oh like okay. i didn't even think that had anything right. to do with them 
I think they're probably just giving him a salary and saying like drive this car or yeah, something. Yeah. You know, some stupid shit or something. I don't know. But I don't know. I haven't read the book. Maybe he is doing like kind of street work for like gambling or something. I don't know. When Connie learns of Carlo's mistress, another argument leads to Carlo beating Connie again. She calls the house and then eventually talks to Sonny, who speeds to their home, but is ambushed and murdered by gangsters at a highway toll booth. And another one of the most iconic scenes that's ever happened. There were 149 squibs on James Conn, so they basically had to do this in one take. So they shot it from a bunch of different angles by multiple cameras. It was heavily inspired by the ending of Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, and tough for a youthful Matt to watch. The final kick by one of the gunmen is supposed to be an indication of Carlo's involvement because Sonny was kicking Carlo like Mm -hmm. that on the street. We were having a big discussion before we started recording. I think it's sort of impossible not to mention it. The logistics of this plan, how this all works, (laughs) is actually ridiculous. I don't know that you could really pull this off because, okay, so let's go beat by beat, especially when we find out later, yes, Carlo was in on this. And so I guess you have to start with Barzini approaches Carlo. No, no, no. Don't worry about that. We're just assuming that Carlo's involved. I just want, how does this all actually start from how we see it? The mistress calls the house. Yeah. Connie answers it, which is what triggers her to freak out. She starts breaking all the plates, having like a complete meltdown, which leads to the beating, which leads to the phone call. So how is this a setup? Like, do they tell the mistress to call so that she'll freak out? I don't know. Does Carlo tell the mistress to call? But like, if he's trying to have an excuse to beat his wife, why doesn't he pick the fight? I know. It seems like it could happen any day of the week and probably does. Is this just to trick the viewer into thinking that it's not a setup? Well, that, I don't know. It does feel that way. but And then the logistics of like having these men and the car in front of the car and all this different well, stuff. Well, Sonny is even available to find out at the right time that he's going to head towards this toll booth. Yeah, having this all timed out and having the guys there. And, and then you have to have that and... car get in front of him and he <laughs> uses the right lane in the toll booth. I know. There's a lot of moving pieces to this that it just doesn't seem like the timing would work out. and I don't know. But it is one of the great death scenes in a movie. So stunning. That moment where he's just like, oh shit, I'm fucked. And then it gets completely blasted. Part of the thing with this movie is that a lot of us saw it when we were young and usually on television or something like that. And I'm kind of reminded of the impact of Jaws and... Oh, yeah particularly the Kittner death and Jaws and these traumatic moments that imprint on your brain and how children today are giant pussies compared to (laughs) (laughs) just the way that children's entertainment is completely different. And then a lot of them are very much shielded from things like this. Meanwhile, I'm watching these movies and yeah, they're edited for television. So they're not saying fuck and there isn't nudity and stuff, but you know, they may have toned these scenes down a little bit, but, but you're seeing much... a man beat his wife, which yeah. is shocking to me as a child, right into this horribly bloody murder. He's screaming while he's getting shot. <laughs> My beloved Sonny <laughs> was being shot. Well, I don't think I had quite dick. the connection to Sonny that you did, evidently, but still, it's... No, I know, but it was... It's a lot. Yeah, I was even trying to figure out how these bullets worked because I was used to seeing movies and 
someone was shot once and they were pretty much dead. And he's got like 80 bullet holes in him and he's still like alive and screaming. Well, they learned from the botch job on Vito. They're like, we have to make sure he's definitely dead. <laughs> right. But yeah, botch job here by the Corleone family, not keeping him protected. I guess that was the whole idea was they knew they could get him to fly off the handle. I get like how yeah, yeah. this all worked, but or I get why this worked, but I don't get how it worked. Right. It did <laughs> seem like a lot of specific pieces needed to fall into perfect place to pull this off. So then Tom has to tell the Don what happened, and then they take Sonny to Bonacero, the guy from the beginning. My wife is crying upstairs. I hear cars coming to the house. I think you should tell your Don what everyone seems to know. Well, I didn't tell Mama anything. I was about to come up and wake you just now and tell you. But you needed a drink first. Yeah. And now you've had your drink. They shot Sonny on the causeway. He's dead. <sighs> I want all inquiries made. I want no acts of vengeance. I want you to arrange a meeting with the heads of the five families. This war stops now. service. He has no doubt that you will repay it. Now he will be at your funeral parlor in one hour. Be there to greet him. skills 
I don't want his mother to see him this way. Look how they massacred my boy. Look but how he, they massacred my boy. <laughs> he does tell Tom to set that up before he knows really the extent of what happened. Did he have the foresight to know that it was going to be brutal? Well, he was going to use Bonacera's services either way. No matter what. But yeah, but yeah. then he's got to look at that body because they bring him there. Yikes. Oh, that was the thing that I really remembered from the novel, though. The order is different. They're taking Sonny's body to Bonacera and the end of the chapter is like they pull it back and reveal that it's Sonny Corleone and then they explain the death. Yeah. Obviously for a movie this works that, a million times. A lot of the stuff that I left out of my notes is that like almost everything that happens in this movie is a flashback. Yeah. Vito's attempted murder, Luca Brazzi's murder, Sonny's murder. This right. is all like flat. I was like going through this and I'm like was everything a fucking flashback? Yeah, yeah. I don't understand this. Thankfully they just did away with that. No, stuff. yeah. It works so much better for a movie. Over in Sicily, Apollonia is killed by a car bomb intended for Michael not long after their wedding. Again, it's clear an attempted move is being made. They go after Sonny successfully, right as Michael's hearing about that. There's an yeah. attempt made on him as well. In that second season of White Lotus, they go to this courtyard where the car bomb is and everything, and I was thinking to myself, this is my type of vacation. It's revealed in the novel that Apollonia was actually pregnant at the time that she's killed, but that's not something they really touch on here. Fabrizio, Hmm. Michael's Sicilian bodyguard who planted the bomb that killed Apollonia, was supposed to be found by Michael at a pizza parlor he opens in America and subsequently blown away with a shotgun at the end of the movie as per the novel. This scene was filmed but ultimately cut because the makeup artists plastered Angelo Infante with so much fake blood that the scene looked ridiculous. Photos of Michael Corleone with a hat shotgun blazing appeared in many magazines despite the scene's eventual removal. It almost feels better to me to not tie it off with Fabrizio. Some of these things just have to like fade away into time. You know? I don't know. There's something cool though. I know because that's so it, that's personal. Yes. Whereas and, the other guys, it's definitely business. Right. Yes. Fabrizio's death was filmed again for <laughs> The Godfather Part Two. This time by car bomb as the ultimate form of poetic justice. But that scene was also deleted from the theatrical version. It was then restored in The Godfather Saga, which first aired in 1977 on television as a miniseries. Fabrizio, by the way, completely unable to keep his cool leading up in this <laughs> attempt. Hey, you're, you're going to be driving your car, right? And your, your wife's not going to be in it, right? Right, 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 <laughs> right, 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 right. The other guy, meanwhile, is just like eating, like doesn't know what's going on. And then he's like, oh, yeah, your wife wants to drive. She wants to show you. She's going to be a great American wife. <laughs> just like annoyed. A little bit of jealousy Annoyed there. at Apollonia because she keeps saying, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> just... Over and over again. <laughs> yeah. And then right before she starts the car, Fabrizio is like panicking, like running away. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Fabrizio. So yeah, I know. 
and then it just keeps going. Devastated by Sonny's death and tired of war, Vito sets a meeting with the five families. He assures them that he will withdraw his opposition to their narcotics business and also forego avenging Sonny's murder. So this is a key scene where we sort of Mm -hmm. learn who the puppet master is, and it's not Tatalia because Tatalia is a pimp. (laughs) And Barzini does completely give himself away at this meeting. Vito has to explain it in the car to Tom and to the audience, but, oh, why is he all of a sudden so passionate about Vito not sharing his political connections? Yeah, and he's sitting at the head of the table. Yeah. And just from an aesthetics perspective, he seems like the guy. Right. Tatalia just seems like a pimp. (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't know. They use pimp so derisively and dismissively and everything that it's just an insult in their world. But yeah, he just doesn't seem like the guy. Right. Barzini definitely seems like the guy. And that's what we learn all along. And if you pay attention to when Vito is speaking during some of the key moments of his big speeches, they don't show Barzini. But if you look at where Brando's looking, he glances at Barzini mm-hmm. when he's like, I'm going to blame some of the people in this room and stuff oh, like yeah. that. He's looking up at the head of the table. And he does stay true to his word. However, his youngest son, though... Yeah, not so much. <laughs> that's a different story. Right. That's somebody else. Speaking of Mikey, his safe return home is assured that's part of the meeting as well. And so he's able to come back. And then we find out, confirmed 100%, K is a real loser. <laughs> I think the novel describes right. her as a spinster, basically. I know. Meaning that she doesn't fuck anybody. And then in the novel, it's a little bit more clear that she does learn about Apollonia. But in the movie, you're kind of like, this fucking clown. She doesn't even know been that he was married around. to I, I someone else. I don't know else. how long it's been. It seems like... Years. Five years? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to tell in the movie. But it's definitely years. And yeah, I mean, you are left wondering, like, what is this life that she's living? The way that they cut it all together, it seems like she's taking that class out on a field trip and then she just abandons them to get into Michael's car. (laughs) I know, but it's almost like more sad that she's a teacher because of how much time off that they have. And like (sighs) just summers alone. (laughs) She was really hung up on him. Yeah. But luckily he came back, you know. Well, I don't know if it ends up being lucky for her. Michael returns, starts working for his father, and eventually evidently after more than a year back, comes to collect Kay, who immediately drops everything to marry him. (laughs) Jesus, Kay. Come on, get it together. I'm working for my father now, Kay. He's been sick. Very sick. But you're not like him, Michael. I thought you weren't going to become a man like your father. That's what you told me. My father's no different than any other powerful man. Any man who's responsible for other people. Like a senator or a president. Do you know how naive you sound? Why? Senators and presidents don't have men killed. Who's being naive, Kay? Kay, my father's way of doing things is over. It's finished. Even he knows that. I mean, in five years, the Corleone family is going to be completely legitimate. Trust me, that's all I can tell you about my business. Okay. Michael, why did you come here? Why? 
What do you want from me after all this time without even calling and writing? I came here because I need you. Because I care for you. Please stop it, Michael. Because I want you to marry me. It's too late. It's too Please. late. Okay. I'll do anything you ask, anything to make up for what's happened to us. Because that's important, Kate. Because what's important is that we have each other. That we have a life together. That we have children. Our children. Okay. I need you. And I love you. So it's clear right away, and this is sort of the subtle transformation. Part one was getting punched by McCluskey. Part two... Stepping in, getting involved, killing Salazzo and McCluskey. And part three, the final nail in the coffin in the transformation of Michael Corleone. The death of not only his brother, which he hears about right before the death of his wife. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you read between the lines a little bit, I do think that Apollonia is supposed to be the real love of his life, love at first sight kind of a thing. And for lack of a better term, Kay is sort of the consolation prize that he has to except upon returning home after her death. He returns to America with his soul black as midnight on a moonless night. But Apollonia and Sonny's deaths have changed him, and yeah, he you could even say he left his soul in Sicily. Mm-hmm. And there is now a coldness in his voice, and right. he is different. He doesn't really have any warm interactions with really anyone from here on out. No. Pretty good line, though, about the senators and presidents. Yeah. Who's the one being naive, Kay? Right. And he keeps assuring her that the Corleone family is going to be, quote, completely legitimate yeah. in five years. Of course, that doesn't happen. Oh, this reminds me of in Sopranos when they always say, you've seen too many movies. Kay gives birth to two children in the early 1950s, with his father nearing the end of his life and his older brother, Fredo, still in Nevada and certainly not suited to lead. Michael assumes the position of head of the Corleone family. With Vito's full support, Michael relegates Tom to managing operations in Las Vegas as he is not a wartime consigliere. So even though they don't even say it, yeah. that's a pretty big indication of what he's planning. He's like, well, I think we're going to head into some big shit. So, Tom, you've already proven you can't handle that. Right. <laughs> His position starts off on shaky ground because immediately Clemenza and Tessio are not really wanting to do this and they have to be convinced to like stay on board as part of some deal and then Tom is demoted yeah they don't do a bunch of explaining but it seems like part of what they're going to be doing is taking a big interest in the casinos in Las Vegas right now is that in response to the Corleone family not wanting to be involved in drugs? I don't know, I guess. He does keep talking about legitimizing the family business. Right. Although, if you start out by illegitimately uh, right. getting control of the yeah. casinos, can it ever really be legitimate? I yeah, guess yeah. people maybe wouldn't look into it eventually. I guess but... it's not going to be legitimate, but I think he wants the income to all show legitimate. Michael then travels to Las Vegas to buy out Mo Green's stake in the family's casinos. Hey, Mike. Hello, fellas. Everybody's here. Freddy, Tom, good to see you, Mike. How are you, Mo? All right. You got everything you want? The chef cooked for you special. The dancers will kick your tongue out, and your credit is good. 
Draw chips for everybody in the room so they can play in the house. Yeah. My credit good enough to buy you out? <laughs> <laughs> buy me out. A casino. A hotel. The Corleone family wants to buy you out. The Corleone family wants to buy me out? No, I buy you out. You don't buy me out. Your casino loses money. Maybe we can do better. You think I'm skimming off the top, Mike? You're unlucky. <laughs> you goddamn guineas really make me laugh. I do you a favor and take Freddie in when you're having a bad time, and then you try to push me out. Wait a minute. You took Freddie in because the Corleone family bankrolled your casino because the Molinari family on the coast guaranteed his safety. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business, Mike. First of all, you're all done. The Coyote family don't even have that kind of muscle anymore. The Godfather is sick, right? You're getting chased out of New York by Bazzini and the other families. What do you think is going on here? You think you can come to my hotel and take over? I talked to Bazzini. I can make a deal with him and still keep my hotel. Is that why you slapped my brother around in public? Oh, no, that, that, that was nothing, Mike. Now, now, uh, uh, Mo didn't mean nothing by that. Sure, he flies off the handle once in a while, but, but Mo and me were good friends, right, Mo, huh? I got a business to run. I got to kick asses sometimes to make it run right. We had a little argument, Freddie and I, so I had to straighten him out. You straightened my brother out? He was banging cocktail waitresses two at a time. Players couldn't get a drink at the table. What's wrong with you? I leave for New York tomorrow. Think about a price. Do you know who I am? I'm Mo Green. I made my bones when you were going out with cheerleaders. Wait a minute, Mo. Mo, I got an idea. Tom, Tom, you're the conciliary. Now you can talk to the Don, you can explain. Just a minute. Don is semi-retired, and Mike is in charge of the family business now. If you have anything to say, say it to Michael. Mike? You don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that! Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. Mo Green, sort of like Jack Waltz, a hilarious character, uh-huh. big talker. Mo Green modeled after mobster Bugsy Siegel though Siegel was not known for wearing glasses. However, both were assassinated with a shot through the eye. They needed Mo Green to wear the glasses to make that effect work. That's sort of how that all happened. But yeah, another big shot guy whose life is just completely rolled over when the Corleones show up. Michael is dismayed to find Fredo more loyal to Green than he is to his own family. Oh, Fredo. Oh, yeah. It's clear Fredo doesn't really get what's happening either because he appeals to Tom and Tom has to tell him, well, Michael's in charge. It's not really Vito anymore. He's not your dad anymore. But yeah, it's good seed planning for part two, sort of the the rift, the potential for a rift between Michael and Fredo. It's not just that Fredo's passed over, but it goes even maybe a little deeper than that. When Michael gets back to New York, he speaks with his father outside in the yard. Robert Town, legendary screenwriter who worked as a script doctor on the film and many other films, wrote this scene. 
Vito warns Michael of his possible assassination. He says that a traitor will come to you to arrange a meeting with Barzini, and this is how you know who it is, and this is where they'll kill you. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot going on in this scene. You have the contrast of old versus young, sort of the fading versus the rising. Yeah, and I guess I should walk back my comment a little bit. This is the warmest you'll see, Michael. He kind of has a little bit of endearment towards his father still. Yeah, and this is also maybe the most that Vito can do without it being some sort of stupid, mushy, I love you type scene where he's basically saying, I never wanted this for you, and he's speaking of his dreams for Michael and everything. And In a lot of ways, this scene is the heart and soul of the whole Godfather saga. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of Michael being corrupted by this and being sucked into it and then having a knack for it and becoming this guy. And seemingly be far more ruthless than his father ever set out to be. Yeah. Zaney will move against you first. He'll set up a meeting with someone that you absolutely trust. Guaranteeing your safety. And at that meeting, you'll be assassinated. I like to drink wine more than I used to. Anyway, I'm drinking more. It's good for you, Bob. I don't know. Your wife and children, are you happy with them? Very happy. That's good. Hope you don't mind the way I I keep going over this Bassini business. No, not at all. It's an old habit. I spend my life trying not to be careless. Women and children can be careless, but not men. How's your boy? He's good. You know, he looks more like you every day. He's smarter than I am. Three years old, he can read the funny papers. Read the funny papers. Uh, I want you to arrange to have a telephone, man. Check all the calls that go. You're not able I did it already, Pop. You know, good Pop, man, I took care of that. Oh, that's right. I forgot. What's the matter? What's bothering you? I'll handle it. I told you I can handle it. I'll handle it. I knew that Santana was going to have to go through all this. And Fredo... Fredo was... And I never, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. And I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string held by all those big shots. I don't apologize, that's my life, but I thought that... But when it was your time that that you would be the one to hold the strings. 
Senator Corleone. Governor Corleone. Something. Another person of Anta. Well. This was enough time, Michael. Was enough time. We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. Now listen, whoever comes to you with this Barzini meeting, he's a traitor. Don't forget that. In 1955, Vito dies of a heart attack while playing in the garden with his grandchild. Oddly enough, I can remember seeing that movie Mafia. Oh yeah, I know. Me too. I always remember that too. Like Liam and I get, goofing around. I get the I get them confused. Sometimes, yeah, I know. And I always think the scene is Chucky. more ridiculous <laughs> yeah. than it is. Same. Where you think the kid is like spraying him with pesticide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. And most people are probably like, "What fucking movie are you talking about?" But it was like Bo. No, uh, it was Bo and Jeff's dad. What's his name? Uh, Lloyd Bridges. Oh, okay, yeah. He was the that's, old guy. That's right. I was thinking it was Leslie Nielsen, but I think he's in. He might be in it too. Okay, but yeah. it's, it's that style of. I'm pretty sure. Maybe it is Leslie Nielsen. I thought, but I know uh, Jay Moore is in it too. Jay Moore is in it. Yeah, I saw it in the theater, and that was probably the only time I ever saw it. So I you're saw talking it on, a well, long time ago. I saw it on VHS rental, but around that time too. So, but yeah, it's just one of those stupid parody movies, yeah. and yeah, I always kind of for some reason get these scenes like confused like yeah. the scene's gonna be more ridiculous than it is <laughs> pretty great for me when i popped on the blu-ray that i got from you actually but the title menu video that just plays is vito corleone just laying dead in the <laughs> garden <laughs> and i know that we're already hours into this podcast and we sort of blew it but if you haven't seen these movies or you would like to watch them they're all on peacock Except for the original version of Godfather 3, which I think you have to rent that or pay for that. But if you want 1, 2, or the new version of 3, the death of Michael Corleone, those are all streaming free on Peacock right now. Don Corleone's death scene, while it featured in the novel, was originally not to appear in the film because studio executives felt that the audience would see the funeral and know what had happened. Francis Ford Coppola shot the scene with three cameras in a private residence on Long Island. The makeshift garden itself was created from scratch and torn down immediately after shooting, with Marlon Brando ad-libbing his lines. Oranges, or even the color orange, foreshadow death. Clemenza asks for more wine and is given a pitcher of wine with oranges floating in it by Polly, the driver he later has killed. Tessio reaches across a table for an orange foreshadowing not only his death, but that he will, quote, cross the Corleones. There are oranges on the table between Tom Hagen and Jack Waltz. Vito Corleone is buying oranges when he is shot. Mm -hmm. Carlo is wearing an orange jumpsuit when Sonny beats him up. Sort of a wild outfit, actually. Yeah, really. Foreshadowing both of their deaths. During the sit-down with the other Dons, an orange is placed in front of each Don that Michael later has killed. Vito has an orange peel in his mouth when he suffers his fatal heart attack. Mm-hmm. Noticing a theme. At Vito's funeral, it's Tessio who asks Michael to meet with Barzini, signaling his betrayal. From the funeral, we roll right into the baptism of Connie's baby. Michael has agreed to be the child's godfather. The meeting with Barzini is set for the same day. While Michael stands at the altar... Yeah. 
Corleone hitmen murder the dons of the five families plus Mo Green in Las Vegas. Settling all family affairs. It is interesting. I've watched this movie so many times. For a long movie, everything sort of fits. You're invested in everything. It moves along at a good pace. But I almost feel like the end kind of comes out of nowhere. It feels like you have more to go still. And then... Well, it turns out that you did, and that's why they probably were able to make the Godfather saga into that miniseries so seamlessly. Because not only are these movies long, the two films, but there was a lot of other material which they shot, which is then restored, and it just becomes this long, epic thing, even way before the existence of Godfather 3. If you look at how long the Godfather saga is, it's endless. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, how much material did they even add to it? I don't know that I've ever seen the whole thing. I've I've only Same. seen parts of it because I never really understood what it was. I just thought it was, oh, they took the De Niro scenes right. and they Same. do everything in chronological order. That's what I thought, too. But there's just so much stuff added to it. Yeah. Anyway, yes, this is another all-timer moment, the cross-section of the assassinations with the baptism and it's always cool in these movies and the deer hunter another great example where they just have this like authenticity to the traditions and the ceremonies in this film you start with a wedding then you have a funeral now you're at a baptism it all mm-hmm. feels very real it looks right. very real there's so much attention paid to the detail coppola said on the dvd commentary the intercutting of the baptism scene with the gang killings during the movie's climax did not really work until editor peter zinner added the organ soundtrack Another key definitely music moment. And yeah, again, Michael already proving to be much more ruthless than his father by taking everybody out at once, reestablishing yeah. the Corleone family at the top of the food chain, just pulling the dick out, putting it on the table. Great for concluding the movie. It does leave you feeling like, wouldn't there be a shitload of blowback from this? How many people's hit list would you be on now? But also, maybe you just snapped everybody in line, like, holy shit. Well, yeah, true. (laughs) Because who are they listening to now? Right. Plus, there's a big relocation looming. Tessio is also killed for his betrayal, albeit off screen. But it is cool, the build-up to that, too. Tom, can you get me off the hook for old time's sake? (laughs) Can't do it, Sally. Yep. But I do like the way they do it, too, where they're walking out to get in the car, and then they're, oh, yeah, Michael can't go he's gonna meet us there or whatever and tessio like starts to unravel a little bit like this messes up my plans and then tom's just like yeah i'm not going either yeah then, <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's a crowd yeah. yeah michael then extracts carlo's confession to playing a part in sonny's murder love this scene too assuring carlo he is only going to be exiled and not killed but of course immediately afterward clemenza garrotts carlo to death in the car hi carlo oh carlo you won't see him no yeah. more <laughs> It's not like there's violence that's tough to watch, but they do a little something to each moment that gives it a little bit more grit and a little bit more realness, and him loose kicking the windshield out. Right, yeah. Connie confronts Michael about Carlo's death while Kay is in the room. Kay asks Michael if Connie is telling the truth and is relieved when he denies it. As she leaves, Capos enter the office and pay reverence to Michael as Don Corleone before closing the door. Michael, you lousy bastard. You killed my husband. 
You waited until Papa died so nobody could stop you, and then you killed him. You blamed him for Sonny. You always did. Everybody did. But you never thought about me. You never gave a damn about me. No. What am I going to do? Connie. Why do you think he kept Carlo at the mall? All the time he knew he was going to kill him. And you stood godfather to our baby. You lousy, cold-hearted bastard. I don't know how many men he had killed with Carla. Read the papers, read the papers. That's your husband. That's your husband. <laughs> no, no, no. She's hysterical. Hysterical. Michael, is it true? Don't ask me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Don't ask me about my business. No. One time, I'll let you ask me about my affairs. The ending mirrors the beginning of the film. Uh-huh. The film begins and ends in the Don's study at the beginning. Vito is the Don, and Michael truthfully tells Kay about the business his family are in and the fact that he wants no part of it. And at the end, Michael is himself the Don, and then he lies to Kay about his involvement in Carlo's death. Michael has become his father and perhaps even worse, and there is no turning back now. When writing the novel, Mario Puzo either directly or indirectly borrowed ideas from real-life mafia stories, some of which we've already touched on, but specifically he borrowed a lot from the life of New York City gangster Crazy Joe Gallo, including the dynamics of he and his brothers. In the movie, Sonny is the hothead like Crazy Joe. Michael is the thoughtful and intelligent one like Larry Gallo. And Fredo is the dimwit like Michael Gallo. Also, terms like sleeping with the fishes and hitting the mattresses came from the lives of the Gallows. An associate of the Gallows was killed while on a fishing trip with friends, and the Gallows were sent a fish 
wrapped in a box just as when Sonny hmm. gets Luca Brazzi's bulletproof vest with a fish. Yep. When the Gallows revolted against their boss, Joe Profesi, they went to war and rented apartments stocked with mattresses. In real life, after Joe Gallows saw the movie, he actually considered suing Puzo and Paramount oh, wow. Pictures for ripping off details of his life for their story. However, this never came to pass, as predictably Crazy Joe was murdered on hmm. April 7th, 1972, almost a full month after the movie's New York City premiere. How about that? And so that brings us to the end of the film, and I guess it's up for debate, and it will always be as to what the best film is, or the greatest film, or the most important film, but I think it's less up for debate when you're talking about influence, and I think that The Godfather is right up there with Star Wars and oh yeah, a handful of others, Citizen Kane and... Jaws. Jaws and Halloween and... A few of these other films, a lot of which came out in the 70s, but some a little bit earlier, like Wizard of Oz or something, as far as influence and how their impact on culture, this is one of those movies that, if you haven't seen it, it feels like you have, mm-hmm. because it's just so endlessly referenced and I know. quoted, and it we just talk becomes about a part of your life in one way or another. Certain lines that you just know before you've ever seen the movie, and this, this one has a few of them. Yeah. And despite its runtime being three hours it feels to me at least endlessly rewatchable it just moves along you never feel like you're stuck in something that's chuffa that's extra it feels like every moment matters there's so much going on in it but it's all cool yeah good and then it leads right into godfather part two which again i don't want to really step on too much but considered one of if not the best sequels right. ever made. Some people prefer it yeah, I feel like to that's part a, one. A common take. I don't know if I prefer it to yeah. part one, but it's certainly a great film as well. Definitely. Has a little bit of a different vibe to it because it's not a transformation necessarily. Yeah. I and you're swapping out Brando for the De Niro part, but De Niro's not really interacting with the other right. actors necessarily. So Part two undeniably has some great scenes. I always prefer part one just because the characters, you know, you lose a few good ones. So then you're going into two with you're already down some of the people that I love from the first one. Yeah, not having Castellano's return as Clemenza is sort of a bummer because you're already losing so many other people mm-hmm. that swapping him out kind of stinks. But right. It is what it is. And then eventually they get to part three, which was a big letdown for a lot of people. I think time has been kind to the film i think people have sort of gotten over and accepted it for what it is it is still ridiculous though but i always i still haven't watched that new cut yeah which you recommended at one point on the (laughs) podcast yes because it's always worth diving back into the world but just some of the stuff that happens is insane the fact that there's a giant helicopter attack enough said incest which is always right great normally something we are a fan of I wouldn't say that we're fans of it. It just comes up more often than you would think, (laughs) really. And Coppola has sort of slowed down, I think, ever since the disaster of Jack in the mid-'90s. He hasn't really had anything that noteworthy, depending on how you feel about what was the Grisham adaptation he did, Rainmaker? Oh, yeah. With Matt Damon. Mm -hmm. He's flirted with the mainstream here and there, but especially post-2000, his projects are much more small. And I know under the it's radar. stuff people you would say it to people and they would have never heard of. 
He did Twixt, right. I think was his last movie, which at this point now is 12 years old. But now he's working on Megalopolis, which has a star-studded cast. It has a huge budget. And right as I'm doing all of the prep work for this, all of the notes, you're seeing all these stories come out very similar to Apocalypse Now. So perhaps the documentary about the making of Megalopolis, which is being yeah. made, by okay, the way, great. will be just as entertaining yeah. as that stuff. Now, at this point in his life and career, is he going to be able to pull this out and turn it into a success? I don't know. The idea that this movie that he's making, it's going to make its money back, I can't imagine because the budget is spiraling and it doesn't seem like it's a mainstream idea. It's kind of one of those things that you read a description of it and you're kind of not even sure what you're reading. You're like, (laughs) what is this movie going to be? I don't know. But... I always think it's cool that he bet on himself over and over and he Definitely. was willing to spend his own money on his things and, and had just to have like, his rich friends like George Lucas right. bail him out and yeah. rebuild his life and career and then go bankrupt again. And then <laughs> finally he realized, well, if I do this wine thing, I can make money from that to fund my projects. Yeah, and yeah. now he's going all in on this big project he wanted to do. Right. Adam Driver's in it. Shia LaBeouf is in it, oh which was controversial uh-huh. when that was announced. I can't remember who else is in it. There's a lot of people, though. He was early on one of my favorite directors, like when I started having favorite directors. You know what I mean? <laughs> when I even started paying attention to names and credits, he was one of the guys, and I would go on to read all about the making of Apocalypse Now and you're this insane, almost ruining his life making that movie. I had never thought of directing a movie being like that. <laughs> people are like, you were a big one from the heart fan. Uh, I do. Days. I think there's something there. I'll say that. I think people missed the buck on that one. <laughs> what are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Okay, so let's reel it in on The Godfather. I guess real quick, we can do some recommendations. This episode is spiraling sure. at this point. But we did go see Babylon in the theater. We were two of the few who have actually made it out mm-hmm. for that one, which is a movie that's budget was over $100 million. I think it's... Last time I looked at the box office, it was only around like 12 Oof. I, I'm sure it's made a few more million since then, but not yeah. many. Had high hopes for it from the trailer. It just seemed like a fun time. It's it's a tough pill to swallow when you're factoring in the promotional budget and everything. The movie might lose close to $150 million or something yeah. like that. So it's got an albatross around its neck. And look, it's over three hours. It's longer than The Godfather, for God's I know. sake. I don't think it earns it the way The Godfather does. It's sort of a mess. There's at least one of the central storylines which you could cut out no problem. Uh-huh. It doesn't really factor in much but having said all of that and it's far from a perfect film i would say compared to much of the awards type fare that i've seen this year i liked it a lot more same it actually has a pulse it's a little over the top to the point where you're kind of like rolling your eyes sometimes you're like okay you're almost trying too hard i know but i have heard that a lot of the 20s movie stars and the silent film people their lives were kind of like this Uh 
they're way wilder than a lot of other eras of Hollywood. You just don't really know about it because it kind of wasn't well documented. Yeah, it wasn't the same. Like people didn't talk about it and it wasn't reported on the same way. But yeah, it's sort of entertaining. It's three hours and nine minutes. I can't say that I was bored at any no, point. No, not bored. You always maybe wanted like, to see what was going to come next because it yeah. was so crazy sometimes. I would say maybe you lose your bearings throughout it. There's some wild tonal shifts. It's as decadent as can be, which stands out in a, a puritanical time that we're living yeah. in now where there's not really a lot of movies doing stuff like this as much. There is a lot of nudity, drugs. The movie opens on an elephant's asshole shitting out horrible liquid shit. It's insane. Right. There's a lot borrowed from Boogie Nights and the films of PTA. Paul Thomas Anderson. Even beyond some of the obvious stuff, there's just sort of like tracking shots that go on the same way. There's one in particular that really reminds me of the end of Boogie Nights yeah. with Burt Reynolds walking through the house. Except <laughs> that's more of like a happy ending uh, in right, a way. Right. And then this leads to not a happy moment. But it felt exactly the same to me. A lot of the other scenes, too, feel very tonally similar, especially the Alfred Molina scene from Boogie Nights. That seems almost replicated Yes, Toby Maguire in this movie. But overall, I kind of enjoyed it. I thought Same Margot way. Robbie was great. Yeah, she's a shining star. I didn't necessarily love Brad Pitt as much as I was hoping to. Yeah, but he's still him. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't necessarily his fault. I just found a couple of the worst scenes of the movie he was in, and that wasn't it wasn't his fault. It was just the way they were written. I thought it was like explaining it too much. There's one scene in particular that I was like, well, this is the definition of telling us right. and not showing us. I feel like you could have shown us that and not have two characters just come out and explain it to us. Is it the cockroach scene? Yeah, that okay, whole thing yeah. with him and, and Gene Smart. Right. Where I was just like, yeah, I well, get I think she I has some good lines in that scene. But yeah, I know what you mean about... It was almost like explaining uh-huh. to us sort of right. part of why you would make this movie and yes. what the point of the movie is. And it was kind of like, all right, I feel like you need to show us that a little better. How and, were you on the whole end, the theater sequence? Uh, I, I didn't love that. Yeah. I thought it was not really earned. I agree with you. There's a moment where that could really work and really capture me and that wasn't quite happening there i oddly did like that uh well i don't want to give away spoilers yeah, yeah. So never mind i'll maybe say that off mic so the movie's still new i don't want to explain I, yeah, specific I think details of we things. both did enjoy it though overall yeah yeah it'll be interesting to see how that lands in my top 10 of the year i still have plenty to see obviously because mm-hmm. uh, you know we're not really going to the theaters that much Another movie that we both saw that is now new to streaming on HBO Max is The Menu. I guess we can talk about that briefly. thought it was hilarious. <laughs> we both saw the trailer like a million times. I know. Almost to the point that I was losing interest just because of that. Like You kind of get beat down when they show you the trailer so many times. Yeah, I wouldn't call it hilarious. That would be a stretch for me. Okay, I was laughing a decent amount. I liked it more than I thought I would going into it definitely and i i watched a bunch of new movies over the course of a couple days triangle of sadness white noise amsterdam and the menu and the menu i definitely liked more than all of those but i would compare it to glass onion oh wow i I felt like the commentary was it was what it was and then kind of once you get what they're doing Mm -hmm. 
I started to kind of lose interest. See, I was never as bored as I was in Glass Onion. But it's also a lot shorter runtime. I was a big fan of the dress that Anya Taylor Joy was wearing. Definitely. <laughs> if we could let our She's sexist an exciting, selves come out uh, this deep into the podcast. person to be appearing in things, I would say. Yeah, always a joy, mm-hmm. like her name. Yeah, I, I thought it was good. I didn't like it as much as some people, but I would say like if I was giving just a thumbs up, thumbs down, oh, I, yeah. would, I would give it a thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. But I wasn't like blown away or anything. I thought it was pretty funny. I was laughing through through. I a think part moment. of my biggest problem was the ending felt stupid to me. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't want to give away the ending, but I just, I don't know. I, I'm I not going to be it. rushing back to rewatch it anytime soon, but I don't see a ton of great movies, so in terms of new material that's coming Did out. Did you like it more than Babylon? Uh, I gave him the same rating. I don't know. Babylon's probably a little bit more my style, but I think the menu is more coherent. Well, yeah, it's definitely more concise and yeah. to the point, and Babylon is a sprawling, rambling I movie. always like to give credit to the edit <laughs> if you're gonna be three hours i feel like you gotta earn it and make every minute count and i can't say that i felt that way about babylon yeah but babylon is sort of like a heaven's gate to me yeah it's just I somebody going that. like i'm gonna do my big thing i know i do agree with that and i do have an appreciation for that damien chazelle whatever his name is he does whiplash yeah. la la land First Man, those are all very well-respected movies. And even though they obviously were hoping that this movie was going to be a huge success and that everyone would love it and the reviews would be great, there had to be a part of them that was knowing. Like They knew this was a swing. Yeah, because the reviews have not been super great, which I'm surprised by. I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of am like annoyed by the whole Rotten Tomatoes culture, which I know well, I'm definitely. sure we reference all the time. But just you see the scores of some things and you're like, okay, so these stupid ass movies that no one will care about or remember because they're just garbage awards bait. These have like 85, 90% and then Babylon, which is like a huge artistic swing at something, which may not be entirely successful, but at least it's something that has like a 55%. Mm -hmm. It's like, get the fuck out of here. Fuck off with that shit. All right. Yeah. I've also been watching Copenhagen Cowboy, the new show from Nicholas Winding Refn on oh, yeah. Netflix. It's a six-episode series. Each episode is about 50-something minutes, so it's not as out of control as Too Old to Die Young, which I believe was, what, 15 hours yeah. in total? It was so long. Some of the episodes were like two hours or whatever. Yeah, But I will say that in a weird way, it's it's maybe less accessible because the story you're kind of like, well, I don't even know what, how to explain the story. Is and it it's, as on brand for him as yeah. all of his other recent work? Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's long, grim, hard to watch at times. No, not okay. as bad. Not as bad that way. Okay. It's definitely not as graphic, but the scenes are really long and slow. Okay. And every yeah. scene looks like a painting, you know, it's so yeah, staged right. and it's visually hypnotic now, it is all in, I believe, I want to say Danish. Is okay. the, <laughs> I'm assuming that's what the language is. And I've never seen any of the people in the film before oh, okay. or in the show right. before. It's not any known people or anything like that. And like I, the story is hard to explain. It, I'm sure. I, I would say Too Old to Die Young is maybe easier to explain oh, what, wow. what is yeah. happening. Like this is, it's sort of weird, but it's not as 
hard to watch in terms of like violence or anything like that, but I still have the last episode. There is violence in it, but it's very highly stylized. It's tamer than some of his other stuff so far, but I still have one more episode left. Now, sort of like Too Old to Die Young, it's one of those things where you're like, I can't really imagine actually recommending this to anyone. Because I'm like, yeah. who, who would like this? I don't I know. know. <laughs> it's almost like Netflix specifically made that just for Denmark or something. Because like, okay. they don't like promote it. Like, How would anyone in America even know it existed? I don't even know. Well, I sort of felt that same way with Prime with Too Old to Die Young. It just felt like... That's true, but Prime does that all the time yeah. to a lot of stuff. Right. That had fucking Miles Teller in it, and they're like, let's not mention that we have this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but again, how do you explain it? How do you market that right. to anyone? I don't know. It would be cool to see, see if he actually does go through with this maniac cop thing that... Oh, yeah. He's the remake that he was doing for like HBO Max. or well, Although, I, now that HBO canceled everything, I can't imagine they're doing it. If that's going to move forward anywhere, who knows? But this thing sort of came out of nowhere... Not that I pay super close attention, but I am a fan, and sure. I, I didn't really know this was even c- going to come out until a couple months ago, and I'm like, oh, I guess he made another show. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm interested. Yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to see if you can stick it out or not. Yeah. It took me a while to finish Too Old to Die Young, but just because... Well, the episodes are all consistently 46 to 55 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Most of them probably about 50 to 55 minutes. And there's only six. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot shorter overall. All right. That'll do it for The Godfather episode 300. I'm not going to repeat the listener request stuff, but we will have more information as far as how to pay for one if you actually have one that you want to buy from us. (laughs) Buy our time to Mm -hmm. do it. I will say that if you pick one that we have earmarked for later, I'll tell you to save your money and and we're going to get to it eventually. Because there's certain ones that all along, since the start of this podcast, we've been holding for the end of the show or whatever, just later later days. But follow us on Twitter, and that's where you can communicate with us. That's probably where we'll do most of the discussing of this stuff and negotiating. If you don't have a Twitter, we'll come up with other ways, I guess, to maybe do that through Patreon. I don't know. We have to set something up. Whatever. It's probably easier if you just get on Twitter, though. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review if you've not already done so. If you'd like a free sticker, reach out to us on Twitter and we'll send that to you. You can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby, where Matt will review anything he sees. Yeah, sometimes with only three or four words, but... I know, some of your reviews are repug. Yeah. (laughs) I'm good with it. I'm comfortable. (laughs) Anyway, any other questions, reach out to us on Twitter. Hopefully by next time we will have the details of how to do the listener request thing, and then we can sort of move on and not mention it all the time. I think that would be helpful for everyone. Well, because we're not expecting a rush. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if people heard us announce the price and be like, yeah, just started laughing and be like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So we'll never get one, which would be fine. And that's totally. Sort of, We've said that from the beginning. Yeah, that's sort of quietly yeah. the, the hope. <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't say hope, but... Yeah. Maybe. We priced it in a way where we're not expecting to get many, if any. We we certainly are not feeling like we're going to be overwhelmed by them. No. But we do have the six free ones from the end of the year and into the beginning of this year that we will get to, as mentioned at the beginning. Thank you so much for listening. It's unbelievable that we've made it to 300. We definitely would have given up 
long ago if we weren't hearing from our listeners. So please never feel like you're bothering us on Twitter or anything or believe me, that's the whole reason we're continuing and have fun doing this. So Mm -hmm. thanks for listening so much. And we'll talk to you soon. No more breaks for a while. Nope. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Thanks. See you. So, what? What? I've been going a long time. Let me hear it. Just when they thought I was out? 
Hey, pull me back in. <laughs> All right, Kay. Just this one time, I want you to ask me about my affairs. Is it true, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> no. You fucking skifoos. Uh. <laughs> Our true enemy has yet to reveal himself. <laughs> He's on a roll! Oh, oh, We're gonna get the fuck out of here! <laughs>